gang. I am back doing a full episode with you guys. It has been about a week, a week and change. I took some time uh, to do a bit of traveling and uh, to hang out with some folks before Gina and I do the big move uh, from Boston to the West Coast, which we'll talk a little bit about. Um, but uh, yeah, I just got back. I was hanging out with my good buddy, uh, David Kruda, over in uh, his place in Red Hook, Brooklyn, um, which this was the first time that I've actually uh, been able to spend a little bit of time in that neighborhood. It's pretty fucking rad. I have to say that uh, it's an awesome place to hang out. Uh, the apartments are fucking tiny as shit over there, but once you get used to that, um, the neighborhood was really cool. Uh, I got to hang out with him, got to do some barbecuing, uh, had some other filmmakers over. We all sort of hung out, and uh, uh, Dave smoked um, a uh, pork shoulder, some ribs, came out really great, and uh, we basically sat around, drank beers, ate meat, and barbecued for about 14 hours. It was really cool. Um, and I also got to go and hang out with some friends on the set of a major movie, major motion picture. So I got to go hang out on the set of a, like a $5 million range movie, which was fun to do. Uh, got to watch an action sequence shot, which was really cool. Can't really talk about the movie, uh, who it is, but it was a lot of fun. I gotta say that. Uh, it's always cool to be invited onto sets um, that I have no involvement with, uh, and I get to sit around and watch another director work. Um, cause that's a rare thing, uh, in our business, uh, being a director, most of the time you're kind of winging it, uh, cause you, everything's in theory until you can convince a bunch of people that it's worth the money, worth their time to put you on set. And then you're basically learning you, the learning curves pretty quick. You, you're basically learning as you go. Um, so whenever I have an opportunity to go hang out with another filmmaker, uh, and see how they handle all the, the little things that we all go through. Um, sometimes you learn some stuff. Sometimes I, I take away some tricks or techniques that that person's doing. Um, or sometimes it's just great validation to see that they also go through the same thing you go through. Um, so I always love to do that. And it's a rare thing to sit down and talk with other directors and have them be very open with you because it's not as bad as it is in the photography world, but there is sort of that whole... I'm afraid to let people in. I'm afraid to give away my tricks. I'm afraid to uh, to do all that sort of stuff. Um, and I, th I think it's kind of bullshit. I think if you're willing uh, to be open and if you're willing to uh, allow people to come and see you work, uh, you end up learning along the way as well, which was cool. So uh, it was a really cool thing. I got to go hang out on a set um, with some of the producers that are going to do one of my movies. So it was cool to see those guys in action to sort of see what like a five million dollar scale is like what a day on a set of that's like how big the crew's like um and then uh start to see an action sequence piece together um so that was fun and it was in brooklyn so that's always cool it's like uh, there's always something really cool about seeing a movie filmed in sort of an epic background epic scale so really rad hold on a sec Oh my god, it was such a big woo. And then um, So I hung out in uh, New York And uh, hung out with Kruda And then drove back And finally got a chance to get out and spend some time with my parents Spent a couple days uh, With them uh, And it was just great It's it's always great to go home and visit I'm very fortunate to have uh, Very supportive parents That uh, 
give a shit about my career. Uh, also give a shit about me and my girl, um, Gina. Gina's part of the family at this point, so it's just, it's wonderful. Uh, we got to hang out and uh, do some barbecuing, do some eating. Um, I did some big, I did a big barbecue yesterday for Father's Day, which was fun. And you know what? Speaking of barbecue and food, you guys know how obsessed I am with that shit. Uh, it was fascinating to try uh, to master a gas grill because I've been charcoal for so long. And it's it's very strange. It's, it's the opposite of what you think. You know what I mean? Because with charcoal, the more air that gets in it, the bigger the fire gets, the hotter the fire gets. So at that point, you're sort of messing with events. And if you take the lid off, your fire's going to get hotter. And gas is the complete opposite. You start taking, you open that lid, and the temp goes way the fuck down. Um, gas is almost like an oven outside, which is which is very strange um, to sort of wrap your brain around. Because barbecuing, for me, you're sort of involved with it. You're involved with the flame. You're involved with all that kind of stuff. Uh, but... I uh, figured it out. actually went out and I picked up some really awesome, really thin skillets, like cast iron skillets. I uh, was able to do this amazing T-bone steak and get that, that blister, get that crust on it with the skillets. It was a lot of fun to do. And if you can't tell, I've been super nerdy about food over the past week and a half. Uh, Crude is a, a fucking food... I would almost say he's a food snob. <laughs> but he's a food nerd. Uh, we're hanging out with Greg Tango who is a, a gaffer that works with us a lot, who's also like a big pit master, big barbecue pit master. Um, and so the uh, three of us have been uh, swapping photos. We've been sending each other photos and trying to one-up each other, uh, which is great for uh, the food skills. Uh, it'll be horrible when I go for the doctor's visit. I'll just say that. Um, so it was fun. I got to hang out with the parents, got to hang out on the Cape and just chill, like just mellow out. Um, and just try to find that quiet moment, um, which is a rare thing uh, these days right now. Because, uh, uh, like I said before in the last episode, you guys listened to uh, Gina and I are doing the move. We're doing that big move from Boston to LA, um, and I'm doing a whole mini series of this show that will just sort of chron- chronicle the different steps involved with the move. Um, so keep your eye out for that. I'll be releasing episodes. Uh, when they're relevant. Um, Right now, we're going through the process of trying to get everything prepped here at the house, get everything out of here, uh, pack stuff up, and then we're going to do a drive. Um, It'll be like a nine-day drive cross-country, which will be fun. So we're trying to plan all that stuff out. And and at the same time, get work, work on work. You know the deal. When you're living this uh, freelancer kind of lifestyle, you're trying to stack as much cash as possible. Uh, especially when you're moving and you're moving to another city uh, and you really kind of have to start all over again. So we're going to have a really cool mini series around this, which uh, there are many of you who are listening that are young filmmakers or film students or even people like I am at this point who have been doing well in their hometown or in their areas and they've been considering moving to Los Angeles. Uh, We'll talk about why we're moving to LA. We'll talk about what our plans are to go out there um, and just I thought it would be an interesting part of the show um, and so far people have already responded there's, there's one episode up that's prepping everything so I've got a really great response from that episode so definitely stay tuned keep your uh, your ears open keep your eyes open subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already you can subscribe to us on any of the major outlets uh, 
the easiest is uh, Apple Podcasts. You actually get an alert on your fucking phone, which is cool. Um, but then Spotify, we're on SoundCloud, we're on Stitcher, we're on all of them. And if there's some place that you are a fan of that you can't find us on, just write to me. Write to me. Go to inloveoftheprocess.com. Uh, there you'll find an email. Um, or you can write to me on Instagram. So if you follow us, if you follow the podcast on Instagram, it's in love with the process POD. That's in love with the process pod on Instagram. Send me a DM me, slip me a DM as they say, and uh, I will respond. So uh, let me know if you can't find our show. If you're one of them peeps that doesn't know how to use the fucking internet, just give me a DM, send me a DM, and I'll, uh, I'll send you a little link. I'll send you that uh, easy link so that you can uh, listen to the show. And uh, also follow my personal account because uh, I'm pretty happy. Like uh, the fans have been great on uh, the at Mike Petchy account. So that's at Mike Petchy on Instagram. Uh, Cross the 30,000 followers mark this week, um, which I know Kardashians have millions. Everybody else has millions. The thing that makes me happy about the Instagram accounts that I'm working on um, is that these are real fucking people. Like, there's no fucking followers wall in India where they're fucking, you know, 400 phones just liking things. It's literally me uh, interacting with you guys. And what I love about the followers is that everybody interacts. Everybody talks to me. So it's a really great way uh, to supplement the show. And it's a really cool way to meet people. And I always meet new crew people. I meet people that I'm going to end up working with in the future. And right now, I'm sort of doing that whole reach out to to people that are out in Los Angeles. So if you're an L.A. filmmaker and you want to hang out, you want to talk, you want to give me some advice, you know, where's your favorite studios to shoot? What's your favorite rental company out there? Like all that stuff is really cool to me right now. So definitely reach out at Mike Petchy on Instagram. So today's episode's all about collaboration. It's all about that stuff. And like I said... Uh, earlier about going to a film set. It's a rare thing when, as a director, you get to sit down with another director who you feel is a peer and someone at your level, um, and the two of you get to sort of nerd out, you know, no holds barred, you know, not worried about what the other person's going to think of you, just get to nerd out. And that's what this episode's about. Uh, uh, joining me on today's episode is a uh, amazing film director. He's a fantastic um, assistant director, first and second assistant director. He uh, works on uh, a lot of David Fincher stuff. So he was, uh, I think, on the, the last season of Mindhunter, he was first assistant director. But I know he started as second assistant for him, um, and that's a fascinating story. Working for Fincher. Uh, he actually, and I'm not going to get into details, but he's got like all these quotes from Fincher from on set, which are really, really fun to, to listen to. Um, his name is uh, Stuart, Stuart Valberg. Um, I think that's how you pronounce your last name, Stu. It's so funny when you hang out with people, you, how often do you actually say someone's last name? Most of the time, whenever I hear someone's last name, uh, it's in conversation or maybe it's said on a podcast. But most of the time, I'm, I'm so casual with folks that it's usually Stu, Stuart. Um, and then uh, it's one of those things where you read someone's last name, and it's Velber. I know it's Velber. But you read it, and you go, I hope this is what it is, because I'm a fucking moron. <laughs> I'm going to say it wrong on the show. Um, 
and I've already put my you know foot in my mouth with the interview. You'll you'll see right off the bat. Uh, but it's a great interview, really cool. Stu and I get to chat and nerd out about uh, what it's like to run a set, what it's like to put on a production. He recently just um, put together uh, a new short film. I think it's proof of concept, but he did a new short film which he had a production company who he'd never worked with before produce it for him um, in a different state, which was interesting. And so he talks a lot about that. Um, And then you can hear how... It's always fascinating to me whenever I talk to different directors, you can tell where they come from. So the set that I was on last week, the director was a writer initially, which was interesting. He was like... I think I could say this. He's like a writer for, for It. He's one of the writers for the movie It. Um, and you could tell that he's a writer. You could tell the way the sets are on. You could tell how everything goes together, that he's definitely a writer. And then when you hear Stu talk, you can totally tell that he's an assistant director. Um, and you can tell that organization is a big part of his day. It's what keeps him sane, uh, which is cool. Um, and then when I talk, I start talking about barbecue and ribs and shit, so... I'm apparently just a fat ass that likes to eat food, so that totally makes sense, too. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, this is a great episode. It's a lot of fun. Stu's a really cool dude. He also hung out with uh, Crude Air and barbecued with us in New York, uh, which was a blast. Um, I think we talked a bit about food. And after we recorded this episode, we went on our own little food adventure through the city here in Boston, and we ended up going over to this place called Little Donkey, which I don't know if you guys are... East Coasters, if you've ever been to Boston or seen the Instagram, um, it's one of Jamie Bissonnette's restaurants, and it is pure fat kid trash, like elevated trash food. I love it so much. Uh, we went and hung out there, ate way too much after this episode. So definitely stick around if you uh, want to hear two directors nerd out about what they love and what they hate and what they're afraid of on set. Um, this is the show for you. So you know the deal. It is hot as balls right now. It is, uh, I'm in my office where I can't run the AC at the same time as I record the show because it'll be too noisy. So I'm sitting here uh, with a sleeve, sleeveless shirt on just sweating my ass off. Uh, so uh, find a cool place. Go find some AC. Throw on those noise-canceling headphones. Uh, be in a better place than I am right now. Sit back. Relax and enjoy the new episode. So, hey, Stu. Thanks for hey, being Mike. on the show. How's it going? It's going good, man. This is a, uh, a fun day for me because we've only really talked. Well, no. Did we ever meet in person? Yeah, we screened together. 12 you were at the screen. Yeah. Such a dick. That was my first <laughs> public screening of that 
sure. <laughs> what a fucking dickhead. <laughs> that's where we met, though. Uh, that's very true, because we did a, uh, a joint screening together. I did a 12-cam screening here in Boston at Coolidge Corner, and we also screened your film, Amigram, which I really liked. Yeah. Um, and then uh, we both share uh, relationships with David Cruda. Yes, we do. Yeah. It's weird. He's, he, it's so funny uh, how close you get with your DP, and then you realize that he's also married to other people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've, I've used... Uh, David Cruda has been my DP on the last three shorts that I've shot, so I'm sure I'll be referencing him ad nauseum today. Yeah, uh, don't give him too much credit, because I think he's kind of a subpar DP. Absolutely. That's the message that I'm putting out there. No one else needs to hire him at this point. No, nobody else can. Yeah, he's horrible to work with. He's got really bad set etiquette. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So I'm really excited to have you on the show, man. Uh, Mainly because I uh, really enjoy your work. It was the reason why I asked to have you screen the movie with us. Thank you. Um, We were talking about this offline. Actually, we had a great conversation offline. I was like, fuck, we got to get on recording (laughs) this stuff. Um, But we were talking about this offline. There... When you see something special in a teaser, if you see something special in a trailer, you see something special in a short, uh, they just have what I like to say, they have balls. Like there's, there's like this really great, deep-rooted attention to craft and detail and tone. Um, and another description that I use, which is completely ridiculous, is smell. And like when I watched your film, um, it just smelled like the kind of world that I would want to be and smell like the kind of universe that I would uh, like to create. So um, I was very excited to have you screen with us. Well, thank you very much for uh, letting me. I mean, that was my first public screening. I mean, we just finished post and I mean, it was just amazing to see it in an incredible venue like Coolidge Corner and just have like a completely engaged audience. Yeah. I and mean, I think there were some pictures. We had lines out the door and around the corner for two short <laughs> films, which was pretty incredible. Yeah, it was cool, man. And it was fun because you caught me at the right moment because we had screened it for one of the few festivals, one of the only few festivals that we got in because our movie was too long for festivals. Uh, and we screened for one of the Boston festivals. I forget which it's like Boston independent international, whatever the fuck it was. It was one of those. And it was a horrible screening experience. Fucking God awful. Um, and they had programmed us with a bunch of the shorts and they put us in like this weird industrial space and they set up like a little pop-up screen and like uh, they tried to play the shorts multiple times and it kept failing and the sound went off. And luckily we were the last ones to screen. So by the time, like they hit a point where I actually physically got up and started to run the projection because it was so terrible. Um, and the audience was just so beaten down by it. So when we put together this special screening at the Coolidge, I was pumped to put you on it because it gave them another reason to come because the folks that showed up initially were so disappointed with everything. Um, So we really tried hard to craft it and to be a really fun experience. And um, it was very successful. I thought everybody had a really good time. Yeah, that was great. We had a whole talk back and everything. And I've run into the same thing a few times in festivals where I've screened my work and it doesn't you know, play or for whatever. I mean, there's just so many things being screened. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, what's the next recourse? I mean, you're going to have to send somebody a link that they watch on their phone or their laptop, and it's just not the same thing. I mean, especially for yourself, you know, you just spend all this time crafting this image, and to see it on a screen, you know, a big 40-foot screen is dramatically different than seeing it on a phone. And it's just, you know, you fly out to L.A. for a show or something, and it doesn't work out, which happened to me. 
And it's like, okay, well, if anybody wants the link, come see me afterwards. It's just like, it's so demoralizing. Um, But then to have such an amazing screening and to be able to, you know, have an engaging audience and get that feedback. I mean, that's, that's priceless. Dude, that's why I make them, you know, I make them for that sort of like that communal experience. It's like, it's why I like to cook. That's all that stuff. It's, it's that, let me show you something. Let me get a solid reaction out of you for it. Um, It's probably the older brother in me, you know, let me try to scare you a little bit. And uh, I think that screening for an audience is important. There's a lot of directors that I know, a lot of young directors that even experienced directors that can't watch their movies with an audience. And I never really understood that because you're basically turning away from all that feedback that's going to tell you whether or not your skills are on point, whether or not your idea was on point. Um, I think it's such an important thing to watch your stuff with an audience. Oh, absolutely. It's the best part. Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um, So we'll get into that pretty deep. So uh, why don't you tell the audience what it is that you do? You're a director, um, but what do you do for your day job? So for my day job, I'm an assistant director um, on feature films, on television. That's kind of what I do to pay the bills. Um, And then also I direct my own material on the side. And what's been great about coming up as an assistant director is I can use all the various contacts and folks that I've met to then, you know, you can talk to a costume supervisor. Hey, would you like to be a costume designer on the next project that I have? Mm. And you can bring in all this amazing talent and experience and all these people as fantastic sounding boards and then you you can get your own project off the ground and with just some of the most invaluable input you can get yeah and on top of that as an assistant director you're standing there and you get to watch other directors work and as a director often you're the only one on set you're the only one that's there that's doing your job and there's not a whole lot of perspective in terms of Am I doing things right? Am I doing things wrong? Is this the way that I want to conduct myself? Is this the way that I should give an actor a note? Is this the way that I should be conversing with a DP? Like, what do I need to go in knowing beforehand? Mm-hmm. And that experience that you get as an assistant director, you're, you're sitting there and you're watching these people work and you're taking, I mean, I'm always taking notes and going, that was genius. Or like, yikes. Dude, um, that's and then, invaluable. That's invaluable experience, man. It, it's great. And it's also one of the reasons why, you know, it's great to sit down and, talk to you here is is two different directors you can actually sit down and you can you know have a coffee or a beer or whatever it is and you go oh wait, wait how how did you how did you pull that off like you know <laughs> what was it you had like you had that great steady cam shot at the beginning of 12 km or like this lighting design and you know who's there it's you can really kind of get an opportunity to, to pick somebody's brain mm-hmm. and get the logic behind something and otherwise if you're just kind of sitting there on on set as the only director you're kind of stranded and you're kind of looking around and, you know, of course, you have everybody that's there supporting from a production design perspective or your director of photography, your costume designer, or cast or anybody else. But really, I mean, unless you're a directorial team, mm-hmm. you know, you are the person that people turn to and go, oh, you know, wh- and you're, wh- what you're, are we doing next? Yeah, you're just trying to maintain that level of bullshit. <laughs> yeah, for like- sure. I know exactly what's supposed to happen. And you're like, maybe I do, maybe I don't. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. I, and it, you've worked for some pretty amazing programs and stuff. Like you've done, you were on uh, Mindhunter, that Fincher show, right? I did, yeah. Did you get to see him work? I did, yeah. Um, it was one of the most incredible experiences I've had in my life, along with it being one of the most difficult experiences <laughs> I've had in my life. But I mean, just being able to see someone who, I mean, I would consider 
pretty high at the you know top of their game. Yep. Um, and just just how it goes from talking to the actors to rehearsal to you know, even things like what equipment are we carrying? What do we need for this shot? It, you know, what goes into that? And being able to then take a step back and as a director go, am I that prepared? You know, what do I know? How do I need to expand mm-hmm. my knowledge base to step up and, and even like be a fraction of as good as someone like him? And so, for example, one of the takeaways that I had for mine, one of the very first things I did um, after season one was I went out and I bought a stills camera. Mm-hmm. And just to practice with how does this work? How can I speak more intelligently with my DP, with the camera ops, with the ACs, and just developing that minimal knowledge base so that you can communicate as efficiently as possible? Because you have to, you know, you don't have to, but knowing the equipment, knowing how everything works, it's just going to make you better and, and more mm-hmm. efficient at everything that you do. And to see him work, is, it's an inspiration to say the least. Yeah. I mean, in his, his history, I mean, he's such a technical director and he came up to the special effects department. He worked at ILM. He did all that stuff. And then he's very much immersed in, in post-production. He's very much immersed in, uh, uh, in technology with all his stuff. I mean, the fact that he shoots his shit at like what, seven, six or eight K and then composites most of his takes and, and shit. Like it's, it's pretty fucking insane. The amount of stuff that he does. He's always been an inspiring director to me because he somehow figures out how through the long process, the long, hard process of all those takes to iron out everything in his style is is there. And like his tone is there. I don't know how he does it. He has like such a very specific calculated tone that knowing being someone that shoots and being like a fellow director uh, I know how the elements affect things. I know how the elements change things. I know how uh, budget changes things or a location falls through. And and so to see someone that is so meticulous and that can continue to be that meticulous is just awe-inspiring to me. It's great. And for example, one of the things that they do on Mindhunter that I actually brought into the latest short that I shot this January was they do a digital extraction. And so one of the things that we were doing this January is I shot a short that takes place largely in a car. And when you're shooting in a car, there's all sorts of places a camera can't go. It that probably far exceeds the amount of places that it can. Mm-hmm. And we have four characters in a car. We're trying to shoot a ton of coverage and we're trying to move as quickly as possible. It's a five minute scene. And to do a full take, I mean, it literally takes five minutes. If you're doing three takes, that's 15 minutes out of your day. So we need to move the row setups as fast as possible. And what we're able to do with this digital extraction is that we're shooting in 6K, and what we can do is we're extracting in 4K. So if all of a sudden you have matching coverage or if you have something that needs to be leveled or slightly stabilized or something like that, you can do it. Mm-hmm. And it mm-hmm. saves time because you're not taking the frame and looking at reference and seeing if it matches. I mean, you can really fly and you can keep the actors in the scene and you can go through it and and nobody loses their energy. And we shot 22 setups of a five-page scene in eight hours. Um, (laughs) And we were rolling for 60% of the day. Um, And having that with a 15-person crew on a short is was amazing. I mean, I couldn't believe what we managed to pull off. So cool, man. So essentially, when you say extracting... You're shooting with the larger frame with the understanding that you're going to crop, with the understanding that you're going to be able to do 
uh, any of that stuff in post to clean up any of those little details that might have gone wrong. Exactly. I mean, you want to get it as close to perfect as you can, but it really helps you. Like, for example, we have one shot that's it's on a slider and you start on a character's face and he takes a look to the right and then you pan to the left mm-hmm. and you pick up another object that's driving across the street and you pick up this car that's pulling in and parking. And what you're able to do, since you have some wiggle room, if all of a sudden the framing for, like, since somebody's walking into a mark, if the framing isn't perfect, you can slide it over a little bit to the left or the right and mm-hmm. post. And then all of a sudden, if you have something on the pan where, I mean, it's human operated, if you need to, you know, kind of like smooth it out, you actually have that wiggle room because you're basically taking, uh, I'm stealing a quote here, the fillet of the frame, <laughs> and you're able to, to smooth it out. And if you don't land on the car that's coming in and parking perfectly, Again, you can digitally reframe slightly. So what you're able to do is you're able to take the best performance plus the best pull-in and all of like the best dialogue interactions without going like, ah, you know what, we weren't framed perfectly, we got to go again. And when you're dealing with the limited in, uh, time and money of independent production, mm-hmm. I mean, something like that, to get the best material can be a borderline lifesaver. It's funny. Okay, so that makes sense. That makes sense that you learned that from his sets. Because when I... When I, Crude and I talk about this, um, when I uh, fell in love with Fincher, I fell in love with Fincher like most people did during Seven and during the game and during like the early days of Fincher where uh, like Darius Kanji, I think that's how you pronounce his name, Darius was the uh, DP and there was this uh, intensity and this ferociousness about the camera work that I fucking love. Like, I fucking love uh, how dirty and nasty and gnarly that stuff really is. And then he made that progression. I think it was like Panic Room. Because Fight Club was still kind of dirty and gnarly. But then I think it was in Panic Room where he started to make that progression where everything was like very pristine, very fucking perfect. And I love his movies. Like uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, fucking seamless. And it wasn't until I listened to it... uh, an interview with him where he goes, look, I don't want to put my personality on any of the camera work. He's like, I want it to be third person floating perspective. And it makes sense. It totally fucking makes sense that he does it because he has this sort of like ominous third person view that sort of floats through these scenes of horror and these scenes of fucking suspense and terror. Um, but I don't know, like, and I, I, it goes against what you were just saying. I don't know if I like that as much as if, like when I go back and I watch like Die Hard, right? McTiernan. I love old McTiernan stuff. And McTiernan started as a documentary guy. And so he was very much like a handheld doc guy and then transitioned uh, into doing, uh, I forget what his first film was, but it still had like that handheld doc feel to it. And you go and watch Die Hard and I love that movie so much. Um, and as It is a, the best Christmas movie ever made. Ever I mean. made, dude. <laughs> Although Lethal Weapon is close, right there, right there behind it. Uh, and then Gremlins. Um, so when I watched that movie again as a filmmaker recently, there's that bit where he's fighting with, uh, I think it was uh, Carl. Tell Carl his brother's dead. So he's doing that fight scene down the staircase and he wraps the chain around his fucking neck and he pulls him down the stairs. And there, it looks like the, the camera might be on a crane and a dolly and they do this push so this counter move is he's coming down the stairs and this thing goes and it's a fucking mess. Like you watch the shot, it's like bouncing and it's and it's all over the place. And you know if that was modern day or if that was you and me, 
and we're sitting in the edit room, we'd look at that go, fuck, like this is going to ruin my fucking movie. Like it's bouncing all over the place. It looks like shit. It's going to fucking ruin it. And the truth of the matter is, is it didn't matter at all. And it actually added to the intensity of that piece. And I'm on a little bit of a tangent here, so bear with it. Um, this also comes across with cinematography for me, from my years as a cinematographer and sort of working through the digital format and coming up, having to handle these cameras like original XL1s, cameras that didn't shoot 24 frames per second, cameras that were still feeling like video. So, uh, and they didn't have a really good lens adapters. So depth of field, everything was fucking in focus. And so I would just struggle so hard to make this stuff feel like something interesting and not look like a fucking uh, broadcast of a football game or something, you know what I mean? Um, and I feel like dirtying up the lens for me, having lenses be gross, having camera moves be imperfect, having all these different elements adds to what that, <laughs> that description that I use, that smell that I have. And I think it's awesome. And I'm not dogging how he did it. And I'm not dogging how you do it. But I feel like a lot of filmmakers today are so hyper fucking focused on whether or not their moves are smooth, whether or not the framing's right, Whereas, as we were talking earlier, we can get we don't have to go too far into it. But you were saying your next piece, you actually want to talk to Crude about doing it on film. Yeah, you're gonna be giving up all that shit, and you're gonna be getting all oh. like this really cool stuff from it. You know what I mean? Of course, and I think that a lot of it has to do with intention. And I think there's a lot of times when dirty frames and handheld and. So, for example, the second short, the one that we screened uh, with 12KM, that was fully handheld. We saw mm -hmm. we were on one single lens. We were on a 35 for the entire production. And basically, we just moved the camera body physically in and out to the characters because we felt like that was the ideal way to tell the story. I think that David actually mentioned that on the podcast when he was interviewed. Mm -hmm. But I think that there's a certain way, you know, just pacing-wise, story-wise, that you that you want to tell it. And it can change from piece to piece. Um, one of my favorite DPs, Barry Aykroyd, who was... Um, oh, uh, it's okay. Take a minute. What was, what was... I don't know. I don't know him. Uh, he was, and I've worked with a guy, so this is like a total <laughs> brain melt. Should have fully formed my thought before I started. Anyway, he... You can IMDB him. Um, so he has... He does a lot of handheld. He does a lot of zooms. And I worked with a project on him where he was shooting eight people at a table having a conversation. And he was able to, as a DP op, follow the camp, the conversation around, bounce around, zoom, rack, move. So and cool. we were able to shoot a 12-page conversation at a dinner table with eight cast members in a day because he could follow the conversation entirely, mm. completely handheld. And it worked. And I think that for different projects, uh, there's... Just, you know, it's just a different mentality. So specifically for the job we shot in January, one of the things was we wanted to have half of the short where it is, it's very structured. Mm -hmm. And basically for the first half of the, the short, it's all coverage, precise framing. It is one way of telling the story. And then it cuts into, for the second half of it, a long, unbroken, sloppy take. And I think that in order to kind of earn this really long take, you really want to show the difference in between the two. The tonality of the short changes dramatically halfway through. Mm -hmm. And so part of the design is to show these two styles together to then gain, you know, 
that contrast and it mm-hmm. will help the tone of the piece. Hopefully we're in post now. So I, I do say hopefully. <laughs> well, look, I bring this stuff up because often on the show, I talk about uh, having a toolbox, having your kit, having your experiences and understanding that the language of cinema is, is, is so powerful and it's built from all this different history, all these different experiences that other filmmakers have had. And so um, I feel like a lot of young filmmakers become obsessed with, I think it's like a consumer-based kind of marketplace right now, and they become obsessed with like specific cameras, specific lenses. Um, I know a lot of young filmmakers that are like, look, I uh, stabilized every shot of my movie because that's what I'm supposed to do, and you're supposed to make sure all that stuff happens this way. You're using it for narrative reasons. And what you're basically doing is you're you're taking a you're taking a chapter from the language of cinema and utilizing that to help tell your story. And that's the way to do it. That's the important way to do it. And I think that the best way to be a director, the best way to tell these stories is to understand, go back and look at Kurosawa and see what he can do with a camera that's on a tripod and locked off and with blocking and how you can block your actors into your mid, into your close-ups, into your uh, wide shots and into your two shots within blocking and never have to cut and be able to see that. And then uh, go the other route and watch Fincher stuff and understand that in the confines of that car, this will save you time and you can actually reframe and do all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then mix that with like, uh, what's his name? Who um, we're both on that name thing today. <laughs> uh, the dude who directed, um, what were the Matt Damon fucking spy movies that he was in? Born Ultimatum, Paul Greengrass, is that yeah, Greengrass, yeah. And then you go Greengrass, which by is by the like, way, I remembered it was Catherine Bigelow, which is like a real embarrassing big <laughs> name drop for me to take five minutes to come She's up a, with that. Amazing, by the way, amazing. Um, but if you look, watch these movies, if you watch these different films, and you're uh, moved by a scene, like if you're physically moved by something that you see visually, if you're moved by something that you hear, maybe it's a music cue that moves you. Um, Log that away. Put that in. Put that in your toolbox and examine it and go. This is why I liked it. Maybe it was this camera push. Maybe it was the fact that it was a one take. Maybe it was something else. And put that in with all your other paintbrushes, so that way when you're examining your story and you want the audience to have that same emotional reaction that you had to that specific technique, then you pull that out and use that, as opposed to just seeing. It's like buying paintbrushes and reading the back of it, and it's like a fucking a list of what you're supposed to do and following those fucking instructions. For know? sure. So if you want to hear an interesting story, and I can't remember if I've, I've told you this before, but going into pre-production of McGrim, um, I knew that David was going to be the DP and I was talking to him about it and I was like, oh, um, man, I saw the trailer for something the other day that I, I really, really liked and it's just, it's really, it's lit by work lights and I want to go after this, this I think it's called like uh, 12 kilometers or something. <laughs> and I legitimately said that and David goes, oh yeah. I shot it, and he probably sent me the link to it as well, but it had been, I don't know, five or six months since I'd seen it, and I was like, so, so I guess you could make it look kind of like that, right? <laughs> and um, they could, um, but it was one of those moments where I, you, just, you just saw this, mm-hmm. and um, one of the things that we were actually talking about recently was the standoff at... Um, oh, at Willow Sparrow, Cre- Sparrow Creek. At Sparrow Creek, yeah, and so... I haven't seen it yet, I know you have, but that was another instance where I saw the trailer of that and was like, oh my God, this is, so the name of the short that I did this January is called The Last Job, and I'm like, yes, this is what it, 
this is, you know, this is a great inspiration. I mean, we're not in warehouses or anything like that. But mm-hmm. um, by the way, if you haven't seen it, do yourself a favor. Check out the trailer and check out the movie uh, if you haven't already seen it, because it looks incredible. But, so you know, in, in, you know, adding on to what you said, these little moments that pop in, you go, wow, you know, this is this is something that I identify with. This is a way that I can tell the story that I want to tell and to attach onto that, you know, and, and write it down and take a screen grab and put it in a folder somewhere and go, yes, you know, it's, it's this music cue or, or this, mm-hmm. this thing that I saw that resonates with the way that I like to tell stories. And as a direct, like, um, I often get asked, you know, do you still see movies the same way? Um, I know you now jaded when you watch movies. And I think when I was a younger filmmaker, probably in my early twenties, I was so obsessed with like examining cinema and I was with a bunch of fucking movie nerd, uh, friends of mine and we'd watch movies and we'd start to talk about them and tear them apart. And it became very sort of overly analytical schoolwork kind of shit. And there hit a point as I crossed into my thirties where I'm like, I forget why I like fucking movies anymore. So I went back and I tried to watch movies like a 15 year old kid again. And I went like going to fucking transformers and shit, <laughs> like going off the other deep end, just trying to remember like, Oh, right. What is it that I love about this? And, and really losing myself. And now I'm sort of coming back and finding myself at this halfway medium where I watch something like Sparrow Creek. And the thing that really pumps me up about great movies like that is that I can watch that movie as a director and understand the limitations that he was put under. Sit there and go, okay, so without spoiling anything, this is all taking place in one warehouse because he's keeping his budget down. And he's got specific actors that he can only have for certain scenes. That makes sense. Um, And then how do you make this warehouse look interesting and dynamic for fucking feature oh let's not put any lights on and let's just specifically introduce lights like characters that's fucking rad and i know you've seen the trailer where the dudes go up to the garage doors and they have the flashlights and those little blue flashlights it's very similar to what uh, crude and i did in 12 cam where he was just very smart about where the actors were shining those flashlights and when they shine them in specific spots they become silhouettes and when they shine them in other spots you'd actually see the reflections on their face so when you watch scenes like that, you're seeing not only the actor perform with his mouth and with his body language, but he's also performing with lighting. So he's actually lighting the fucking sequence too, which is really fucking interesting. Um, and so that, just off the fucking trailer, when I saw those shots and I saw that stuff happening, I was like, this motherfucker knows how. He knows how to take all these restrictions that you and I would be handed if someone handed a first-time director or a young director a script and saying, look, we want this to be self-contained, and the producers are going to go, that keeps the budget down, right? You know what I mean? Like, all this stupid shit. And he's he obviously has a good grasp on the language of cinema. So that he was like, how do I take what I've seen from Fincher and Seven? How do I take what I've seen from all these different elements that I really liked and tell the story that I have to tell with them? And then... I mean, it's fucking Reservoir Dogs. I mean, the at the end of it, he ends up creating this piece that is really well done. He has such a strong voice in it. And uh, even though he's inspired by all these different things, they're just elements of his toolbox. He's not ripping anybody off. He's not remaking stuff. Um, and that's what excited me about the trip. That's why I watched the fucking movie. And I know that that's probably what excited you about the fucking thing too. Oh, absolutely. I mean, how to make something... Yeah, how to make a little look like a lot as, you know, when you when you ask the question, do you see movies the same way? And I mean, I'd answer that with with yes and no. And I think that I would have never seen the trailer for that 
20 years ago and gone, wow, look what they did. I mean, but now, you know, working in production and, and making my own projects, I'll look at something like that and go, that is amazing. <laughs> and and part of the reason being is that you have to make bold choices mm-hmm. and you have to make intelligent choices if you're going to make it work. Like you had to consider how are these lights going to function? How are the characters functioning? How is the light going to work with the characters to tell the story so you see you can understand what's going on and use it to raise the tension or or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like going back to McGrim, we lit that entirely with practicals with basically the entire thing was writ, was lit by three work lights. Mm-hmm. And what we were able to do is we, we were able to have kind of a half day of rehearsal where I had the actors, I had David Cruda, we had the lights. And what we were able to do is work out the blocking so that it made sense and like, okay, well, you know, you need, if you're standing over here, this person's lit by this light. And if you take, if you come over here and then you walk up to this wall, it's going to cast this amazing shadow on the wall. And maybe we can find a place for some bigger gestures here so that the shadow has this amazing, you know, projection onto the wall of what you're doing. And then, you know, even more rudimentary things like, well, if you come around this way, I can't have the camera there because I'm <laughs> casting a fucking shadow on the eye. It's like, you can't do that when you're going to light with, with practicals. But and that's it. Yeah. And what was great was you spend this time figuring it out and planning it so that it works. And when you see a trailer like Standoff at Sparrow Creek, I'm watching it as so, and I'm going, oh my God. They had to think about like casting the light up the side of those garage doors so that the actor's silhouetted so we can see where they are in the mm-hmm. space. Because if you're just staring into a flashlight pointed right at the lens, you don't know. I mean, it could look cool. You could get some cool flares, but you might not know where somebody is in the space. Right. And right. I mean, you know, dude. And then the stories that you can tell with that shit. Like, absolutely. You know, like when is it a silhouette? And when's it not? When's the flashlight on the floor? And when's it up? And like, and that becomes another extension to the actor. It's the same way that their body language is. The same way that their their gesturing is. The same way that they would use uh, language. They actually can be emotional just with a fucking flashlight. Like I'm, I love. I love visual cinema and um, probably because I was trained as a silent filmmaker before anything else. So for me, it's just about how do you, how do you tell a story with pictures? How do you tell a story with editing? Um, it makes sense why 12 cam was in a different language because that movie for me was a visual story. Um, and then the subtitles would, were just like the icing on the cake. It's just a little bit something else to do with it. Um, and, when I watch something like Sparrow Creek, it's the same fucking thing. Like you, you see how characters walk in and out of light. You see how characters walk around corners. You got to watch the fucking movie. I don't want to give too much away, dude. Uh, but the performances are fucking spot on. Performances are fucking spot on. Um, and that lead, what's his name? I really love him. He was in. Um, the James Badge Dale? Is that his mm-hmm. name? Yeah. And I actually liked him in. Uh, that Michael Bay fucking Benghazi, Benghazi movie. <laughs> um, I actually enjoyed him in that too. I think he's a great actor. And he he really carries this whole movie. He's really fantastic, you know. I have to do myself a favor and watch it. Dude, you gotta... I, I'm talking to you about a movie that you haven't seen. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm here, I hear I'm going on about it. I'm only seeing the trailer. <laughs> So 
So it's that time again, guys and girls. It's time for us to check in with the people that keep this show afloat. And I am very happy and very proud to have these sponsors with us. I consider my sponsors my pals. Um, I consider my sponsors my partners. Uh, I use all this shit, so the stuff that I'm going to sell you today uh, is stuff that I use. So when you guys are sending me texts like, hey, you know, what kind of lights do you use? And uh, what, what do you edit on? And all that stuff. This is the shit. Okay, so get out your pencils and uh, make some notes here. So first up, our good buddies, long lasting, been with us since the beginning. My favorite dudes to go on bar safaris with. The awesome guys over at Puget Systems. If you're in the market for a brand new computer, if you're a photographer, a filmmaker, a sound engineer, if you're a gamer, and uh, your machine, your hardware in your machine is not keeping up with all the new software updates, which happens to all of us constantly, and you log into, uh, you go search for that uh, Apple website, and you go through and they give you a certain amount of selections, usually two or three, and you look at the price tag and you're like, what the fuck? Yeah. That's how I felt years ago, where it was like, I have to spend how much money just to get a system that do, does the exact same thing that my old system does. And then if I want to have it be uh, compliant for the future, and if I want it to be able to handle 4K, oh my God, that price tag is ridiculous. Oh, and don't worry, you can sign up for some sort of credit card and be indebted to us in which uh, two, three years from now, when the hardware goes out of style, I'm still fucking paying it off. Mm, don't get me started. It's a rant. You've seen me. I've written articles online about this Mac versus PC. Here's the thing. If you're looking for a new computer and you, and you don't want to blow all of your money, or if you have a nice nut of cash and you want to get other things, you know what I mean? Because it isn't just about buying the tower. It isn't just about buying the computer. It's about getting those cal color calibrated monitors. It's about getting a Cintiq. It's about getting a sound uh, board. It's about getting great speakers. Like if you're building a good edit system, all those details start to add up. So if just your box itself costs you like six, seven, eight grand, what the fuck? You know what I mean? Anyway, rant, rant over. Go check out Puget Systems. Look into PCs. There's no reason why you can't be editing and working on a PC. They're faster, they're cheaper, and just examine the software you use. I do everything in Adobe, Adobe Creative Suite. That's on both systems, right? And then now the one thing that was keeping me uh, from being a quote-unquote professional was that Mac was the only one that can run out ProRes because a lot of the clients demanded to have the ProRes file codec format for final delivery stuff. Now it's no longer the case. PCs can also run out ProRes. So what's the fucking difference? If you're worried about the operating systems, they're both folder-based operating systems. You literally will start up your computer and click on the icon for your edit system and it runs. It's the same on both. And the thing that I like about PCs more than I like about Mac is that they're not keeping you from background folders. They're not hiding folders from you. They're not hiding stuff from you. It's a lot easier to dig deep and to find like those weird missing autosave files. You know what I mean? Like the thing that drove me crazy on a Mac is that in order to keep it, uh, running at optimal for everybody they would just strip down your access they would make sure that you know don't let them meddle with this shit because it's going to fuck it up you know what i mean and with uh, pcs you can play that game uh and windows is not a perfect environment but uh it's as good if not 
comparable or better than what the uh, Apple does for their operating system. Man, it's so hot in here. My brain starts running, shutting down. Uh, so anyway, rant over. Go to PugetSystems.com if you're looking to buy a new computer. You can actually shop for your PC based upon the software you use. There are pull-down menus, so like if you're an After Effects person, bam, go check out After Effects. They'll give you a baseline package, which you can then customize. And I don't know if you guys know this or not, but all of these software platforms require different types of hardware. And it is not always the new piece of hardware on the market that is the best for that software. And the thing I love about Puget Systems is they run benchmark tests and they put it all online. Like these guys aren't just about selling computers, they're about helping you build great PCs. So if you're someone that wants to build your own PC and you wanna see some benchmark tests, these guys test all the new hardware, they test it with all the different software um, programs that we use and they put that stuff online. So go to PugetSystems.com, check them out, buy yourself a, a sweet new PC edit system, buy yourself an amazing Photoshop system. Uh, it'll blow your mind how inexpensive it, ultimately it is and then you'll have enough money to buy all those other little cool details that you need. And it's upgradable. And they got really good customer support. Okay, anyway, enough of that. Also, next up, our second biggest fans, uh, the dudes over at Rule Broadcast. If you are a young filmmaker, photographer, and you're tired of trying to keep up with the trends, uh, buying a new camera, I haven't bought a new camera in years. The problem I've always had with it is that by the time I drop that big fat coin on a camera, uh, the producers who are reading on the trade magazines are like, hey, look, I want the newest version of that camera. I want Airy now, or I want Red now, or I want Sony Venice now. And you haven't even come close to paying off that camera. You know, like how much do you spend on that shit? 35,000, 40,000, right? And then as a freelance uh, filmmaker, a lot of times people are asking you to throw that stuff in for free. I know I've asked for it before. I've asked my DPs, hey, do you think you can throw your camera package in? I could throw you a little bit more money, but our budget doesn't really allow for it. So now you're someone that owns that camera package and you're barely making your loot back because you're not even getting paid for that. That's a tough place to be in. And some people can do it. And I think the only reason why I would say buy your own camera is if you had a long running project, it's cost effective, or if you have a client that specifically needs a specific type of camera and you know you're going to pay it off. That's what makes sense, right? But otherwise, if you're just a filmmaker, you're trying to make your way in this business, you're trying to get a good relationship with your clients, definitely go form a solid relationship with your local rental house. And if you're on the East Coast, above New York, the best place to go is Rural Boston Camera. You can check them out. I think it's rural.com. Go check them out. These guys not only have all the latest and greatest gear, but they teach you how to use it. You could actually go down there and put your hands on the new Sony Venice. You could put your hands on uh, an Airy Mini. You could put your hands on the technology that they're using to film the movies that you love. And you can be trained on how to use it. And these guys love independent filmmakers. They love forming relationships. And it isn't that difficult to set up an account with a rental house. I mean, they have insurance waivers. So if you don't have your own insurance policy, uh, I recommend you get your own insurance policy because that makes your life a hell of a lot easier. Um, but if you don't, they'll have insurance waivers. It's just a certain fee for it. It's not that bad at all. Uh, and the thing that's really great about going with a local rental house is that if that gear shits the bed on you, right? Because it always does. Audio gear, especially. doesn't matter how new it is. doesn't matter how amazing it is. There's always that weird thing that happens on set. 
And if you're ordering your equipment from like an online rental place, you're screwed, right? But if it's a local place, you can call them up, like Rule Boss to Camera, you can call those guys up. They'll walk you through it on the phone. They'll try to talk you and figure it out. And if you can't figure this thing out, they'll literally drive to set with a replacement. I mean, how can you, like how amazing is that to be able to turn to your producer and go, we're covered. We're absolutely covered. If this stuff shits the bed, they'll drive out a replacement. Um, I've done that before. I've been on a shoot where we were shooting outside in the wintertime and the fucking lens froze to the camera body on one of our shoots. And I couldn't take the lens off. Um, and I literally called the guys up and they're like, no big deal. They drove out, brought me a whole new set of shit. It was awesome. It was really cool. So uh, I highly suggest it. Make a relationship with your local rental house. And if you're on the East Coast, check out Rule, Rule Boston Camera. Okay, so our newer sponsor, I think this is like the third show, second show with these guys. Um, very excited to have them on board. Uh, we need to show them some love, everybody. Um, and I know a lot of you that are listening love, love lighting, love cinematography, right? And I'm, I'm going to do another episode on lighting. You guys have been asking for it. I will do it. One of the coolest things right now in filmmaking, cooler and better than any of the new cameras on the market over the past four years at least, has been lighting. The advent of LED technology, um, you know, the change from the fact that your lights aren't hot as shit when you use them anymore. So your sets are cooler. Uh, the actual light fixtures are skinnier. Uh, you get to a point where you can start paper taping lights to a wall. You don't actually have to have like these big stands and big rigs for it. Um, and uh, I love this whole new uh, full color spectrum range that uh, these professional LED lights have. And I am proud to say sponsoring our show is one of the best in the industry, uh, Quasar Science. Now, if you're working in the business, you're shaking your head going, Quasar, yep. Because every time you show up to a set, it's Quasar. Anytime you see some giant softbox built with a ton of LED uh, tubes in it, it's Quasar. Quasar does amazing shit, guys. In these simple tubes, like I have uh, one of their uh, QLED rainbow lamps, and they come in different sizes. You can get them at two foot, four foot, eight foot. I think they sent me a four foot. Yeah, I have a four foot, yeah. Thing that's rad about, it looks like a tube. Essentially, it looks like, for those of you who don't work in the business, it looks like a lightsaber. Fucking awesome, right? And in this lamp itself, not only does it have high output, so meaning that you can get a great exposure off this thing, and it's consistent light. I don't know how many of you have either used your iPhone or one of your uh, DSLRs, and you've shot with like LEDs on the back of a car, and you see sort of that strobing and that blinking effect that happens. That's because those lights aren't constructed for filming. Uh, Quasar Science makes lights that are perfect for filming. There's no flicker consistent lighting um, and they run the full rainbow scale for, for color beautiful saturated color um, to the point where it'll match up to gels which is super cool because if you've seen my work or if you've seen Gina's work where we love color contrast in our photographs and uh, a lot of my music videos a lot of my films are very colorful and in the past, we would have to go get gels to do that. You'd have to go spend some buku bucks on basically a disposable thing. Because uh, gels burn up, fall apart, shred. Like, it's, you know, for a big old roll of gel, it's like 150 bucks. And that shit, you're essentially eventually going to throw out. 
Um, and then you couldn't, you'd have to go pick specific colors. You'd go through like a little like gel swatch book and be like, okay, for this shoot, I need some straw. I need some like neon green. So to go through that uh, with the new LED technology, you can physically dial in any of those colors into the same light unit. You can actually program these light units to do transitions. So I think Quasar started, and I'm going to try to get them on the show. I think Quasar started in like the stage arena where they were working with live bands and live stage stuff. So they have all this really great built-in effect stuff. So like if you watch um, first season of Stranger Things when she's in the basement or she's in the, um, she's in the school and the thing's coming through the wall and she walks down that hallway and all of the overhead fluorescents are flickering and strobing, those are all LED units. So you can actually program these things to do like lightning strikes. You can program these things to do like cop car stuff. So it'll actually uh, recreate the look of the red, blue lights. Um, if you watch the uh, Dale Strong piece that we did, we used a lot of LED units that had programmability to them. So like that blue light underneath light that was moving around, it's simply done. It's so fucking cool. And the light units are so small, so lightweight, um, that you can literally carry them around. You can move them around your subject to see how they're working on them. They work great for edge lights. They work great for practicals. So you can design them into your sets, uh, which I think has been overdone lately. But you can do that. Um, or you can build them up and use them as keys. Really cool shit. I know that all the gaffers listening to this are already like, we got it, Mike. We love Quasar, the good shit. This is for you young guys and girls. You're looking for some lights right now. You want something that's lightweight. You want something that you can carry around to set. Uh, definitely check out Quasar uh, Science. Go to quasarscience.com. Um, and then I know that they have links to a bunch of different distributors for it. Uh, if you go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, I put some links up through Amazon to actually purchase the light that I have, um, which is not a bad deal. I think it's like, don't quote me on this, but it's under 500 bucks for it. It's really fucking rad. It's an awesome light. You can buy multiple. You can chain them all together. Uh, you could start to design your own light show with these damn things. Um, LED is the way of the future. It is the cool way of lighting stuff. Um, and uh, the dudes over at Quasar Science are at the forefront of it. Proud to have them on the show. And please, do me a favor. Go through, click them out, check them out. Visit their uh, Instagram page. And when you do, if you like something, don't just like their image. Right underneath, like, heard you on in love with the process. Because... They need to know that you're listening. They need to know that you give a shit. And I know a lot of you do. So support the show by visiting them and telling them, hey, thank you for being a sponsor in love with the process. Tell them that Mike's a sexy man. He likes to eat food. Uh, he likes to like things. Um, all those really great things. Say all that stuff. Thanks. Uh, and if you want to support the show otherwise, because you guys have been doing such a good job of supporting us, Go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. You can donate. There's a $10 donation button there where you're like, hey, I got an extra 10 bucks. Uh, Mike, take it. <laughs> and I'll use that for the show. I'll actually use that to pay for all these stupid little hidden costs that no one knows about uh, to do a podcast. Or if you haven't done so yet, you can sign up for the free trial at Audible. Right? I think if you go to audibletrial.com backslash with the love of the process, I will put the link below, and if you haven't already, you can sign up for a 30-day free trial, which will give you a free book, 
And then you can listen to that book for 30 days. And everybody that signs up using our link, we get loot. And then if 30 days run out and you're like, you know what? I didn't really use this that much. I'm not going to do it anymore. No big deal. We still get paid. I know you'll keep it because it's rad. It's like the coolest way to ingest books at this point. I've been doing a buttload of driving. I'm about to do an assload of driving across the country. I think 48 hours straight across the country. So you bet your ass I'm going to be listening to some books on Audible. Uh, It's like the ultimate in time travel (laughs) technology. Where you can get lost in a podcast or you can get lost in an audiobook. Uh, next thing you know, you've been driving for four and a half hours and you don't even realize it. So, especially for my soon to be fellow uh, LA neighbors, and we're going to be stuck in fucking traffic every day, uh, Audible is a great thing for that. So, anyway, enough with the rants. Those are my reads. Let's get back to the show. In this modern climate of entertainment where we have such a plethora of it, we have where at any point, of, like you and I could stop right now and, and watch something. Like we have access to shit and so much of it. Um, and there's so much, uh, there's a huge need to fill this time slot. There's such a huge need from all these uh, like media delivery services and, and uh, uh, Netflix and Amazon and all that kind of crap. And a lot of the stuff that, you see regularly, at least I do, and I look at it and I go, this is cheap. It just feels fucking cheap visually. It just feels cheap emotionally. Um, And that trailer, I think a friend of a friend sent it to me. So it came, it it wasn't even fed to me. It didn't even come through the algorithms. We would think that the fucking algorithms would have known that I would have loved this thing, but it had to come from a friend of a friend of a friend. And then it showed up and I was just blown away initially, but just how it looked and how the trailer played out. And there've been a, quite a few. Yeah, I think the last time, uh, like a large, big budget movie did that for me was the last was the new Blade Runner. I think that was the last time that I saw something. It was Blade Runner, and before that, it was Mad Max. Yeah, I mean, thinking back, that sounds accurate. Yeah, because I mean, the Marvel stuff's cool, whatever. I mean, it's serialized. It's there's some good stuff in there, but whatever. Who, you know, who gives a fuck? It, when I watch Marvel stuff as a young director, these are like 160, 200 million dollar movies, and it's so, so beyond me. And the idea, like, I'd like to be there and do something. I'd love to do a Marvel movie. I would love to do the, a Godzilla sequel. I'm a fucking huge Godzilla nerd. Um, but to me, when you start talking like 160, 200 million, it it, it sounds more like I'm going to become a president of a small country. Yeah, and I'm dealing with that more than like doing this indie stuff or doing like a even in. And they don't really exist anymore, like a thirty to forty million dollar, uh, like Hollywood movie. Um, it's it's certainly rare. I mean, it's one of the reasons why a Star was a Star's Born was so remarkable is it's kind of returned to this adult oriented rated R drama for yeah. thirty forty million dollars that really has a lot of thought and energy behind it. I mean, it's a very far cry from my particular taste when it comes to genre, but. I mean, they just had so many, inte- I don't know if you've seen it, but they had it's a bunch awesome, of very yeah. intelligent production decisions. Like, for example, for a lot of their co- uh, concert footage, they would take the first 10 minutes of a Lady Gaga show and shoot it. And Bradley <laughs> Cooper learned how to play and he learned how to sing. And they just take 10 minutes with a full crowd. And you have these amazing scenes of spectacular production design 
simply because somebody thought of that and went, you know what, maybe, you know, this is who we have as our star. I mean, maybe we could do that. Yeah. The worst thing that happens is, no, it's not going to work logistically, but it did. Yeah. And just the concert footage of that movie is incredible. Dude, yeah. And then when you watch that film, because I, I watched it uh, and I, I enjoyed it. Um, and obviously my favorite scene, and so many people will say the same thing, is is that moment between him and Sam Elliott in the car. Yeah. You know, it, was, it wasn't dad, it was you. It's like that whole fucking moment. I think that was the strongest, for me, it was the strongest moment in that whole movie. When you examine that scene as a director and you're like, it's a truck and two dudes in a driveway. That's it. And it was like a little bit of camera coverage. I think it was handheld in the back seat for most of it, maybe some over. And that was it. And spectacle aside and everything else, that scene to me is that whole fucking movie. And it's so simply done. It's a scene that, you and I, like if we had a couple actors today, I can go out in the driveway and shoot that in the fucking driveway today. And that's what I love about cinema is that we do get lost in the spectacle. And of course, when you're talking about bigger budgets, it's always bigger, you know, more money, bigger fucking, more CGI, bigger scenes, have to blow shit up. But at the end of the day, we really don't have to get that big. We can be really simplistic about how we do this stuff. And if you are trying to trigger an emotion out of folks really just sort of examine human beings and look around and get off your fucking phone for a minute. And you can design a scene like that with your fucking cell phone and shoot an amazing sequence like that. You know what I mean? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's one of the things where something like Tangerine is so interesting. Um, that was shot on an iPhone. Soderbergh did his most two recent movies on an iPhone, mm-hmm. High Flying Bird and um, I'm going to drop the name of the other one. I haven't seen Unsane, either Insane, maybe. Yeah. Um, and... You know, when you watch something like that, you, you take a look at it and it becomes about the storytelling. And I love watching things like that because you go, wow, I mean, this is something that can be done. I mean, the original paranormal activity was, what, $15,000 in his own personal house? I mean, if you pick a story that you want to tell mm-hmm. and then take some time to think about how you want to tell the story. And there, there's certain ways that telling a story is it's scalable. And will you tell it from one person's perspective or 32 different people? Or does it take place over the course of a year or five minutes or, or whatever it is? You kind of want to take this core kernel mm-hmm. and grab that and pull it out. And then how can you do it? What do I have? I have an iPhone. Okay, maybe there's a version of this that can be told on an iPhone. Oh, you know, maybe... I have access to a, a stills camera or I have access to um, an actual like Red Epic. You know, it, there's all sorts of different things and different ways you can go about it mm-hmm. um, once you've figured out what that story is that you want to tell. I agree completely. And here's, okay, so because we're two directors, we get to hang out. Uh, and by the way, initially, your thought is very, very correct about it being a rare thing as to having two directors... Being on another director's set is also very rare. And actually having that opportunity to to watch another director work is a very, very rare thing. So it's interesting that your job lets you do that. That's an awesome gig to have. But it's also nice to be sitting in a room with another director and have like candid conversations about uh, technique. Um, and one of the things that I find, I don't know if you find the same thing. Um, one of the things that makes me the most nervous when I first start and when I work with actors is that first round of blocking. Like, whenever I start blocking for the first time with talent, you get people in a room, 
it always feels super awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if you feel the same way, but I like it's it's always that like, so how do I walk and what do I do? And I always I hate over I hate directors that over explain things. So I my Ooh, I'm super guilty of that. Oh, I hate I can't do it. Like my I learned through years of doing commercials that I would watch you know, poor actors when I was a cinematographer, I'd watch poor actors sit in front of the camera and the director would go, move your arm to the left and say it like this and do it again and say it like that. And, and the actor, you might as well just be sticking a fucking hand up their ass, you know what I mean? And puppeting them. And uh, my whole thing is like, show me something. Show me something and then let's, let's work on it. But it's always very awkward in the beginning. Do you feel the same way? How is it for you? So interestingly enough, I actually go in the reverse. Um, I would say that my initial like, Anxiety, the way that I'm initially nervous, actually comes even before that. When you start talking to an actor about who the character is, uh-huh. because I always have my degree of homework of what I, you know, what I think that this character represents. And when an act, well, the best actors that I like working with, they'll come in with all of their own ideas. And I always feel like that's the stage when I need to almost prove that I've done my homework. This, yeah, this is why this character would do that. <laughs> and there's these moments where it's like, well. Well, well, why would I do that? That doesn't feel like my character. And you're going, oh, shit, I didn't think about that one. Um, hold on, let me get back to you. And you kind of go back to your notes, and you have these pages and pages of things you've written about <laughs> why the character does their thing. It's like, I don't know why the fuck they opened the fridge with their right hand. I don't know. you know. And, and, and you, you're, you kind of go down these little spirals. Um, <laughs> but when it actually comes to getting on set and doing the initial blocking, I, I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I usually come in with a very, very strong idea of what I want to do, where I want people to be standing. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't always end up being that's what it is, but I, I definitely feel like, okay, yes, this person's standing there, this person's over here, this, you know, you walk over to this corner because of this, that, and the other thing, and you are able to work through it. And I kind of feel like I might overdo my homework in that regard, but I'll think about, I want the camera to be here, I want to be able to see over this person's soldier, and you're doing this. And then I like to start very, very specific and then, okay, we have the building blocks there. We have the structure. We have the rudimentary pieces there. Now where are we going to go? And then let go of it a little bit and let the actor decide based on all the information that I've provided them and say, yes, no, hold on a second. Like, mm. I want to start there. And that, that's, that's fine for me, is starting with an over-explanation. Here are all the details. I'm going to say 10 different things Maybe you're going to take eight of them. Maybe it's five. Maybe you're going to, whatever it is, you know, bring your own feeling to it. And I really do want to, and one thing that is very important to me is making sure that any actor that I work with has the opportunity that, I, that they feel like they can provide input. Mm-hmm. Because I have a tendency to overexplain and overdo my homework. And I, what I don't want that to do, and one of the things that, I, that I'll always do is I always sit down with an actor beforehand, whether it's over coffee or a beer or lunch or whatever it is and really spend some time sitting down with them person to person where you're not on set, you're not in front of 27 other people looking at you guys going like, okay, what are we going to do? You know, things like that and really make sure that they understand that I am open to the input. I would like to say that I've done the work, but but what do you think? But I do want to get to what do you think after I've gotten the opportunity to explain the way that I think it should go Mm. and then you know we can we can step off from there and another thing that i always do with actors is that anybody that i've cast they have my email they have my cell phone they and they can you know reach me at any time if some actor texts me at four in the morning and is like yeah what about that i mean 
I might not respond, but I want them to feel open to do that because people do, they, they wake up at two o'clock in the morning and all of a sudden they're like, oh my God, what about this? Yeah. And I don't want anybody to ever feel like they can't, you know, but again, going back to what you said is that I do want to make sure that my initial intention and idea is there and let's see where we can go next. I agree with you. I Very similar. What I end up doing is I usually map out all of my scenes with an overhead bird's eye view. And it's probably from my, my days of cinematography. I, I do that too. Yeah. So like I'll do that and I'll put my light placements and I'll, it's the weirdest thing when I'm thinking about people at that paper stage, I'm usually thinking about them as shapes. So it's like, here's how the light's going to wrap around them. Here's how the camera, this is where the camera needs to be. This is all that. And I have like these, I have them in Photoshop, these little overhead shots of people that I move around. And I spend weeks looking at, looking at scenes with these overhead moving around kind of human beings. And it's always awkward to me because very similar to what you're saying, I'll get to the set and go, this is where you need to land. This is what you need to do. But it's essentially, I might as well be moving a fucking mannequin from spot to spot the way that I've planned this thing. So I always get nervous initially because I can't physically, and it, it's exciting nervous. It's not, it, it's not upset nervous. It's not, I, it's not really anxiety. It's excitement where you're sitting there going, I can't wait to see what it is that you're going to do. But when you're working with actors and you're working with, with talent, especially if it's someone new, there's always that moment at first where you're feeling each other out. And it's, it's that trust. It's building that trust and, and trying to convey to a stranger, you can literally you know, pull your fucking pants down here and I'm not going to judge you for it. You can do whatever it is that you want to do. You have to trust that not only am I not going to judge you on it, uh, I'm only going to use what's good. Like you, like, and it takes a while for you to get to that point. And for me, it usually takes multiple takes. If it's an actor that I haven't worked with before and we haven't had time to do rehearsals and we're sort of doing this blocking thing, it takes like multiple setups. Sometimes the first two or three setups are just trash. They're fucking dog shit because the actor's just trying to feel out whether or not they can trust me and trust the crew and trust the people that they're around. So I guess that was my point. Like it's, it always feels a little weird to me when they first get started because all that's running through my head. Like, where are you gonna land? What's the lighting gonna look like? What are the camera positions gonna look like? What does it mean to the scene? Uh, where are we gonna find this coverage? How are we gonna punctuate the emotions that are in the scene? But more importantly, how do I take this human that is like all bundled up and like let them loosen up and let them take their stuff off and, and just show us something interesting? Because we need that as directors. We need a human being to come in and add humanity to the fucking mannequins that we're just placing in different spots for the lighting. Does that make sense? It completely makes sense. Uh, I've been very lucky that for my own personal projects, I've been able to rehearse beforehand for right. all of them. Nice. And I would never give that up um, because you're able to sit in a space with just the actors, maybe the DP, maybe the production designer, depending on what you're doing, and work it out. And you're working it out when you don't feel like you're under the gun. There's not all these other people staring at you. You're not going, oh my God, how much am I paying for overtime on this? You know, you, that's... That isn't part of the concern. And for the last job in January, most of it takes place in a car. And I was able to, with David, get all four actors in the car, 
rehearse everything for hours and how's it all going to work and okay well we have to pass this thing from one seat to another and there's so many Mm -hmm. things even small things when you get into the space and you realize like oh you can't actually pass that that way because the center console's there or we want to get this shot of like the fuel gauge and the steering wheels in the way so we have to move these things over here and Mm. you can kind of get all of that worked out and i would never give that up for anything If, if i get to rehearse beforehand for the rest of my life, I would take it. Mm -hmm. Um, The one thing for me, and I think that the, one of the most challenging things is to get to a place where people trust that you've got it. And I think that that to me is almost the reverse because you're the only one, especially on a small indie that probably has a monitor. I mean, some people can like crowd around the focus monitor, but usually you're the only one. And then you're trying to convince 15 other people, yeah, yeah, we we got it. Like, that was a good performance. And we we got the shot. The focus was what I want. This rack was perfect. This little look you did was amazing. And we got to move on. I want to get more setups. I want to get more coverage. We need to give all the other actors their time. And I think that that, to me, is is where the real challenge comes in, is we've got it, and here's why. And here's why you should have confidence that when I say that I do you're not self-conscious of the other elements that are going on here. Or, you know, we were shooting on a street mm-hmm. and we constantly have cars driving by and people would beep because we're obvious or, you know, an ambulance would go by with the sirens and you'd shoot the scene and all of a sudden someone's going, hey, well, you know, we had that thing. It's like, or we had that airplane. It's like, do we got it? And to be able to say something like, yes, we do, because they're talking in the back seat. We're on your cover. You know, we're going to be in the back seat for this not for this, like, we got to go and we got to get other things, like, mm-hmm. and being able to answer that is intelligently and to a point where other people believe you. I mean, that to me is is <laughs> one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. I mean, do you feel like it gets easier now that you've had a couple films under your belt? Um, no. I mean, I, I, cause I think, I think that, I mean, for me personally, it gets easier, but I feel like every project for whatever you're doing, whether it's as a director or as a DP or an assistant director, whatever you're doing, you're constantly fighting against the notion that I'm not an idiot and hopefully nobody else <laughs> thinks that. And, you, and you, you do essentially have to prove it every single time. And those first couple days or hours or during rehearsal or when you when you sit down with coffee for the actor explaining like, well, yeah, you went to college here. I don't know why that's important, but you totally did. Um, and... Those are the times when you, hopefully other people are getting you know, the confidence built in, in your vision and your ability to simply make decisions. Yeah, you know, is big... is this lighting working? Is this blocking working? Is this pacing working? You know, and there's certain things like, so again, for this short that we shot in January, there's almost two different versions of it pacing wise. Like we can cut out here. We can cut out here. The last two shorts that I've made, similar to 12KM, are too long. And <laughs> what I wanted to give myself was the opportunity. He's like, you know what? This scene works. There's a 30-second version of this scene that works. But if it's playing and the music's you know, working and everything that comes in in post that you don't necessarily get an opportunity to see on set, like, let's open those doors. Let's have, yeah. let's have the, the material there, but then you know, give yourself as much opportunity to be, I don't know, as, as flexible as possible, but then... You yeah. have that confidence to relay it. Yeah, and I mean, that's experience in the edit room and understanding how things cut, understanding how the piece comes together. It's fascinating because your perspective is very much an AD's perspective too, by the way. It's really fascinating. 
Um, and I like it because it's all about scheduling. It's all about making sure you have time. It's interesting when you hear you speak about how you design a day or how you get the scene or how you're designing, how you're shooting stuff. It does come to time. And it's smart because coverage is key. I think that especially in the modern uh, uh, audience that we have right now, people need coverage. People need a sense of urgency. People need uh, stuff to be exciting. And unless you're doing it for a, a good reason, like if you're doing like a one take or a long take that you're going to do in your piece, that's going to stand out ridiculously at this point in this um, modern climate that we have because people are going to go, I've never, like my, my long Steadicam shot at, in 12KM, it's like I've never seen a Steadicam shot. How'd you come up with that idea? I'm like, have you ever watched Goodfellas? Have you ever come back <laughs> and watched any of the old stuff? But it stands out uh, so starkly in the modern uh, environment because, you know, we're what? 20 years after MTV generation of like, bam, 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 bam. So like everything's super high cut. Everything's cut really quick. Everything has to be force fed to the audience right now where it's like, you feel this way because I say that you feel this way. Here's this music swell and here's this series of fucking things. Um, I'm off on a tangent. I forget what the, the purpose of it is. Um, it's just interesting to see uh, how, as a director, someone would come to me and say, it was obvious that you were a photographer and a director of photography because of how I describe things and how I make my decisions. And I hear you making your decisions because you're obviously an assistant director <laughs> in that department. Um, and no negative to it, but it's just fascinating. It's fascinating to hear. Um, well, but this is one of the great reasons why, you know, we can sit down together and talk about these things because there's all these different perspectives that somebody can bring to a situation. Mm-hmm. And unless you take the time and you know, sit down and, and talk to people, you're, you're never going to know or, you know, listen to a podcast or whatever it is. You just, you can't jump to these conclusions all by yourself. Yeah. I mean, you could incidentally get there, but you won't get there with design and purpose and knowing it's like, oh yeah, like this is something that could help make my projects better. And I mean, one of my big things, you know, working in the independent filmmaking world where basically I'm almost entirely self-financing all of my own projects is the idea of, and I know that this is something you've brought up on the podcast before, is how much you gain with prep. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this 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 could be the AD showing again, but when it comes to organizing your day or when it comes to getting the maximum you can get just organization helps. I mean, if you figured out just this, the most rudimentary things about, like, for example, we're shoot, we were shooting outside of this bank, and if I can say, we're only going to look in this direction, this direction, and this direction, we can park the camera truck, the grip truck, anything <laughs> off, like, right off camera, and what we're not doing is we're not wasting time going, oh, shit, we need the whatever, let's run 20 minutes to the truck because I couldn't figure out where we want to shoot, and we parked it around a warehouse three blocks away, and... By figuring it out and, and doing all of that homework, you get to maximize your time with the actors, rolling camera, you know, figuring out the finer points of performance, or going again on another take. If you're running out of time and you're like, oh, we're 80% of the way there, we're 80% of the way there, but like the sun's setting, you know, you sometimes sacrifice just the little bits of gold that you run into when you have more time and energy there and yeah, and, and i think yeah. that that's the sort of thing that you know when it comes to working on an indie i mean again when we were rehearsing in the car we figured out things that we could have been standing around with 25 people staring at us going 
how do we pass this bag into the back seat because it doesn't work the way that I wrote it on a, you know, or even, even the way that you storyboard. I mean, storyboarding is such an amazing tool, but it's not a physical camera in a space. And I can't tell you how many times I've seen, it's like, well, but this is the storyboard. And like, yeah, but the camera doesn't go there. Exactly. Like, it just, exactly. It, it doesn't. And what, what me and David, again, were able to do, there's this app on, a, on your phone called Artemis. It's like 30 bucks and it's imperfect. But what it does is it sets up, well, this is actually the lens. You know, the, these are the lenses we're using. This is the fan, this is the frame size. And you can look at an action and all of a sudden you can line something up and go, oh shit, that thing I was planning on doing is actually out of the bottom of the frame. Because you're just looking at it with your eyeballs going, oh, I can see everything. But, you know, on camera, it doesn't always necessarily work. And part of our rehearsal process is we lined up every single shot in the car. And we knew what would work and what wouldn't and what we actually needed to cut away for inserts, times we needed to go on a tighter lens and get these little beats because they weren't naturally in frame. And all that time and energy that you spend prepping, mm-hmm. you just reap the reap the benefits when you're rolling. And this is misconception, I think, that prep is boring. <laughs> uh, it's not. I think it, prep for me is one of the most exciting portions of the whole thing. And then uh, talking to Kruda after your shoot, because he was telling me about it, and he said he had such a fantastic time on your shoot because of that. Uh, the prep is the fun shit. And, and honestly, uh, sometimes it feels like after you do the prep, because you've prepped this stuff and it's really perfect, then you're just fighting. <laughs> you're just <laughs> essentially fighting for, for that to get in the fucking can. Yeah. Can I please, can I please have you do your fucking job <laughs> so that I can get this in the can? Um, but yeah, the prep, the prep is, I love the prep. I love storyboarding. I love doing uh, shot lists and lighting design and and creating lookbooks and creating all that stuff. I think that's where it's the most imaginative for me. And then it becomes so when I'm on set when I have to figure it out. Yeah. So, so like when we get into that position and bear with the ambulance and stuff in the background. Uh, but when we get into that position on set where it's like, we're out of fucking time. Like one of my infamous stories, I don't know if Dave told you about it. When we were doing uh, 12 cam, I was dealing with money issues as usual. And uh, I had rented uh, a bunch of lights, a big old truck full of lights and shit. And uh, those guys gave me a sweet deal, but I needed the money uh, for something else. So I knew that I could only have the truck for like two days or whatever it was. And I had a third day of shooting that I needed. And that was when uh, RS character goes down into the basement of that space. And uh, when I was designing it on paper, I knew that I was having this problem. The producer side of me knew that I was having this problem with the budget. So I was like, fuck it. We'll do this whole scene with just a flashlight. And so I had talked to Kruda about it early. And I said, can we light this whole sequence with just a flashlight? And make it work. He goes, yeah, there's these special flashlights that I get our hands on. So we went and ordered, we went and ordered this fucking like LED flashlight from B&H, brought it in. It's like a couple hundred bucks for the fucking thing and dirtied it up and uh, super excited. I'm excited. He's excited. I think he had a flashlight in, in like one Kina flow for that whole sequence. And um, so we start shooting it. Start rolling. He starts coming down the staircase. Looks fucking epic. The lights bouncing off of different colored uh, objects. It's giving him a really beautiful splash. We, Dave and I use haze way too much. There's tons of atmosphere, tons of haze. Comes down the staircase, and we're about two takes into it, and the flashlight starts to strobe. So it starts to flicker. 
And so everybody calls cut and we're like, what the fuck is this? And so then we're examining the camera and we're like, is the camera fucked up? Did it change? Like, is the refresh rate off? Like, why the fuck is it starting to flicker? So uh, we take it, they, they take the flashlight, take it apart, put it back together and like, okay, let's try it again. So we do another take. It's gone. So it comes down the staircase. Now he gets like five stairs down and starts to flicker. And we're like, what the fuck is, and Dave is sweating. And we're like, what the fuck's going on? And so he's like, I don't know. And so he's, we stop. And every time we fucking stop, it's like 15 minutes. Stop, pull the fucking flashlight apart, looking at the flashlight. This is the beginning of the day. Pull the flashlight apart, looking at it. And uh, he's like, uh, let's just change the batteries. So they change the batteries, put new batteries in, do the thing. Roll the tape, comes down the stairs, goes down. Looks great. Perfect. Apparently it was some shitty batteries, right? Let's do another take. Goes down the stairs, does it, starts to flicker. Starts to flicker. And so then we had to stop everything and we couldn't fucking figure it out. And what we were doing is uh, we figured out that the flashlight would only not flicker if the batteries were fresh and you only had two takes out of the batteries. And each one of the batteries in this fucking thing were like $3. And there was like four batteries in it. <laughs> so then I'm on location and I'm sitting there going like, fuck. And that, like the, the light truck's gone. There's no lights. It's just that. And this, we have like one Kino bank and a completely black, no windows, black basement, no practicals, no nothing. And so I'm sweating and Crude is sweating. And uh, I'm like, what do we do? And he goes, I don't know. I think you have fresh batteries. And I turn to a PA and I go, you need to go find as many of these fucking batteries as you possibly can. You need to just go find them. I don't know. Find radio shacks. Find all these spots. Please go upstairs. Please figure the shit out. And so he takes off. And we stop shooting literally for 45 minutes. And like that 45 minutes is the longest moment of my fucking life. Because <laughs> I've got a board. I've got a board of like... In the basement, we were just doing flashlights work. And I was like, this will go quick. So I've got like 30, 40 setups on the fucking board. And I'm sitting there going, fuck, fuck, fuck. And every time... That someone, I'm like, where's the, where are the batteries? Where are the batteries? Where are the batteries? And they're like, he's like 15 minutes away. He's 40 minutes away. He's 30 minutes away. And so I'm staring at this board and I'm sweating. And I'm like, how do we change this critter? Do we just turn on the light bulbs in the basement? What do we do down here? And he, of course, is like, we're not changing anything. <laughs> he's like, no, it'll change the whole vibe. It'll change the whole atmosphere. And I'm like, I'm losing shots. I'm losing shots. I'm literally losing shots. So 45 minutes in. And uh, so... I had great AD who I had on the show, uh, Vlad. And and Vlad comes over and he goes, look, we have to be serious about this. We have to look at our day and we have to try to move on because now the crew is talking about losing respect. Now the crew is mumbling. So first 15 minutes, everybody's like, oh, something wrong. Then you're like 25 minutes in, people are like, ah, oh, still not going, huh? And then you're 45 minutes in and people are like sitting. As soon as people start to sit down, you're fucked. You know, and so you're like, fuck, fuck, fuck. And so you're trying to come up with this stuff. And I remember... Uh, through that panic, I got this rejuvenated sense of excitement where I was like, okay, so how do I change the plan? How do I get what I need to get for the scene? How do I get what I need to do for the sequence? And uh, Vlad was like, look, I'm not saying we're going to cut any shots. Just be ready. So have it in your head while we're sitting here waiting for these fucking batteries. Think ahead. Think ahead on how you would handle this stuff. So I remember looking at it and I was like, okay, I can lose this shot, I can lose this shot, I can combine these things. And I'm looking at the storyboard. Kid shows up with fucking two bagfuls of these batteries. By the way, all the batteries cost me more than what the grip truck would have cost me for the fucking day. Uh, loaded this flashlight up and did a battery a shot to get 
to the flashlight to the basement. And as we got to the end of the sequence, I had to cut, I had two shots or two scenes that were probably comprised of like seven or eight setups. And I made them into one or made them into two. And because of that really stressful situation, I was able to be creative on the fly with it and just go like, there's a fucking better way to do this. What if this is a dolly move? And what if this is a steady cam? And what if we lose these two pickups and then we do this? And then those scenes end up becoming my favorite fucking moments because they are so inspired by the chaos that is location fucking shooting, which I love so much. Um, and so that is the other exciting moment for me. It's the prep, which I love, because then we come up with the idea and it's like, this is what we'd love to do. And then when you are forced, when you're forced into the reality of the world and the world, every fucking second of the day is like, your shoot is over. <laughs> every second of the day, you are not shooting anymore. And you're like, go fuck yourself. It's like, no, it's done. And you're just fighting, fighting, fighting. Um, and in that world, uh, if you're on your game and you know the language of cinema and you have a good toolbox, uh, that's the, that's the really fun shit, I think. Absolutely. Like when we were doing the last job, I created a shot list that was impossible. You just, you, (laughs) there's no way this is achievable. And so what I actually did is I set myself benchmarks throughout the day. Like we have to get through, you know, say this person's coverage by 10.30 a.m., this person's coverage by 12.30, this, but to, so that way each individual actor gets their time and get as much as you can, but then also move on because if you get somebody's coverage from a certain angle on a certain lens and you can't get the reverse matching coverage, mm-hmm. you're probably not going to use it very much, and, you, and I don't want to waste time on an angle that I can't cut to very often. And by doing that, I mean, I got all but two setups that I wanted to do. And from what lit, from a list that was inherently impossible, um, <laughs> I was super proud of like our crew and our ability to pull it off. Um, but by coming into that in advance, I was like, well, this is great. And, you know, these are, these are the places and these are the times when, you know, these are the release valves. If all of a sudden the pressure comes on and I was, oh, this is, this was great. Um, so that, that was, that was, that was a positive pressure moment. But then one of the things that we had to do was we shot this in the middle of January and we had to drive a car out into the middle of a grass field. <laughs> and we, had, we scouted in December and the field was frozen solid. And it's like, of course, this is, this is going to be great. Like the car just drives out into the field and we shoot it and these are the angles and you know, this, this is what we want to do. We get there in the middle of January and it's been 50 degrees and the field's a mud pit. Oh my god! And the car that we have is just this ancient, ancient Crown Vic, which means it's just, you know, heavier than a bag of hammers. I mean, the thing <laughs> it barely ran. I mean, it was, it was a little bit yikes. Um, but now all of a sudden, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I have to reconceptualize how I have to shoot this. Like this thing's gonna get. St- duck yeah and we're going into these these takes and this this car's driving along the road and we have this entire setup to it and basically at the very last moment we had to decide like are we going to do it like i'm not going to send this car out into the field any more times than i have to like just everything has to have gone right up until that very last second and those are the moments that no matter how much prep you've put into it or you know, how much you think that you're mm-hmm. sorted. And I was like, man, day one, we had this all taken care of. And then all of a sudden, you know, we run into this and you're like, 
it's all going to fall apart. We're going to get this car stuck in the field. And that, that was like halfway through day two. <laughs> we have to shoot this thing for another day and a half. And, you know, just, just uh, the amount of, of, of homework that you can do. I mean, it's just kind of like those are the two ends of the spectrum. The one time when you're completely ready where you may or may not get everything and all the things that could possibly go wrong might go wrong. And, you know, these are the places where we can cut and totally prepared. And then mud pit field. Mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. And you know what? That... That place, whether I'm doing commercial, whether I'm doing music video, whether I'm doing any of that stuff, that's why you're there. It's For me, I feel like that's, especially as a commercial director, that's your value as a director, is how you manage and how you handle those moments, because these moments happen on every fucking project. It doesn't matter how big it is. And if it's a project that doesn't have one of those moments, then maybe you should be pushing and challenging yourself a little bit more, because it's a little too easy for you. And I feel like how you manage that stress because if you're listening at home you're like okay of course well you just you just don't drive it out in the field you figure it out no you've spent the time creating this comfort list of prep and shot lists and an understanding and creating this world in your head so that you have this knowledge so that when you come to set your actors believe you your crew believes you and then you get to set and you look at something so fucking trivial something so fucking stupid as the fact that the ground's not frozen anymore and all that goes out the fucking window. And how, how do you manage that initial reaction? Like when you first look at the fucking muddy fucking ground and you sit there and you go, because what, what you want to do, I assume, is like fucking kick, kick whoever's next to you and throw <laughs> some shit across and have a temper tantrum because it literally is taking that precious earned and learned uh, prep that you've done and throwing a lot of it out the window because of that um and that's the skill i think the skill there is is just being able to assess these and and being using that prep and using that knowledge and using that experience uh to to give you the confidence to go fuck the ground is mud covered but i could still get us through this because i know the scene i know the emotional beats i know what i need for the edit you know what i mean and i think that's the power of great directing I think when people look at stuff from the outside, they go, wow, that scene's amazing and the lighting's really cool and he must be a fucking genius. And I, I don't believe, I don't buy into the whole, this guy's born a fucking genius, shows up and he just opens his mouth and fucking amazing scene happens. I think it's just like, how do I handle uh, the fact that I asked for this and I paid for this and I prepped for this and this doesn't exist? Oh, of course. <laughs> you know, and I think that's the... I think that's what we learn as directors, as it, being indie directors, is that um, at the end of the day, we can't just throw a fucking temper tantrum and go to the producer and go, give me. Oh, of course not. <laughs> you know what I mean? I think that's what makes us strong. And I think if you're listening uh, and you are hopefully are into this episode because you want to direct, um, train yourself on that because that's like, it's the shittiest day. It's the shittiest fucking <laughs> feeling in the world, dude. It, it absolutely is. I'll do another really quick anecdote. So the first short that I, you know, proper short that I actually put a lot of money into was a short called Lullaby. It was a short I did right before McGrim. And we shot that in New York City. And this was something I'd saved for two years for. All my own money. I'd saved for two years. And again, we're shooting in January, um, partially because... You can get some really good crew in January, exactly. people, people that are off. Um, exactly. But so that was, that was kind of by design. We're shooting in January. I have the location. I have the equipment. Everything is all set up to go. And it's the day before shooting. And I have to decide, 
I'm going to pay for the production insurance. I'm renting the truck. I'm renting the equipment. I'm sending the people out to pick up the equipment. And overnight, it's supposed to, yeah, maybe half an inch of snow. <laughs> maybe. And I'm like, okay, but I have to, it's, it's now or never. I have to commit to it. And I'm like, all right, fuck it. I'm doing it. Here, go, here goes. Here goes all the money. <laughs> and so I started signing all the deals and I started renting the equipment. I'm sending everybody out to pick it up. And it goes from half an inch to an inch. An inch to two inches. Jesus. To four inches. To a foot. To 14 inches of snow overnight. And our first location is an antique shop that we got for free. But they basically said, you know, you're here for three hours. You can, they open at noon. So they're like, look, you can shoot from 9 a.m. to noon. Other than that, you, you can't be in here. But you can, as long as you do that. And basically they say, you you pay for the employee who's running the register. You pay for their salary for three hours, which was basically nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, then feel free to shoot here. It was actually this uh, antique shop that sold set dressing for movies. So it was like this great coincidence. But all of a sudden we have this truck that's parked in a bonded lot 50 blocks uptown. There's people coming in from all over. And now there's 14 inches of snow and we've committed like everything is paid for and i'm losing my mind i think that i didn't get any sleep whatsoever me and one of my producers who was just basically a friend of mine we went to go we picked up this truck at two o'clock in the morning took two hours to drive across manhattan only 50 blocks but that's how bad the weather was to try to park the truck I'm there, the location manager I had, like a couple PAs, everybody showed up at four o'clock in the morning to spend two hours to try to shovel us out just to get people parked so that we can get everything in and ready. I mean, I was so lucky to have such an enthusiastic crew, but also I had these shots designed where the lead character comes in from the street and he's walking outside and they're coming into the shop and I'm not telling the story of a 12-inch blizzard. I, it has nothing to do with the weather, and if you're going to have that much snow, there's no way for that not to be a takeaway. So on the fly, I'm redesigning the shots and figuring it out, and like, well, you know, what can we do here? <laughs> and the scene has two actors in it. One actor showed up on time. Thank God it was the main guy, but somebody else, the shop owner, the poor guy was an hour and a half late into a three-hour window to shoot. He just got stuck underground for an hour and a half. He left super early and was just stuck so we actually even had to design the first couple shots to just not have the other person in the guys acting against nobody you know there's there's nobody there and that's not the way that everything was designed and we're just scrambling and we're trying to set up lights and snow banks and you know those are the moments when again you know you show up and yikes and and, and, and you <laughs> and, and it's too late you've already <laughs> The, that that money's not coming back. So what what were you feeling when you were watching the news or looking out the window at the snow? Like what was that? What was that reaction? I mean, your just your heart drops out. I mean, when you think about saving enough for for two years to do this and getting the locations and getting the cast and all that goes into the prep of it, and just seeing it die, you know, and you're just oh my. And we had this big shot in an intersection that we were supposed to shoot because we were supposed to start on one location and end in an apartment for a day and a half, and that's how everything was structured. And we weren't meant to go back out, but you couldn't get out in the world. We couldn't do any sort of moving whatsoever. And <laughs> you just immediately go into crisis mode mm-hmm. and start trying to solve problems. And I was incredibly lucky to have such a dedicated crew and everybody involved was up to the challenge. And we pulled it off, and interestingly enough, the final shot, the intro shot introducing this antique shop, what we had to, what I would say, settle with at the time 
ended up being better than what I was planning to do in the first place. Mm -hmm. Because like, I was like, don't look out the windows. I don't want to tell the story of a blizzard. That has nothing to do with our story. And we ended up uh, tracking along all these little antique tchotchkes and then coming up and finding the character walking in the door. And by doing that, it actually sold the space better than just leading him in from outside. You know, yeah, I like the shot, but th- this was way better. Yeah, and you know, yeah. it was this this forced moment, and you know, you, your one option is you implode. And <laughs> you know, since since I was the producer, the only person I could yell at was myself. But mm-hmm. you know, otherwise, you then you you take this and go, you know, well, what can we do? What can't we do? And if you have an understanding of like, what are the options? What are the tools? What do we have? You know, we have a movie. We have these lights. We were able to, well, we can, we do have haze. Of course we have haze because it's crude. And like, <laughs> you know, we can, we can put some haze in this corner. We can blast the lights through there and we can blow out this window and we can come in at this angle. And if you kind of know what these pieces and what these elements are, then you know, ultimately with the equipment that you have, what you can and cannot do. Yep. And I think that those are the mo- like those are the, the the highlights and the lowlights all at once, dude. And they happen on every job. Like it, it may not be that extreme, but it happens in one way or another on every job. And I, I've just over the years that I've been doing this now, I just sort of embrace it. And I've now hit that point because I remember the first couple times that it happened to me, it was really brutal. You sit there and you just want to cry. You just want to curl up and you just want to fucking die. And you want to scream. You want to say how unfair this is because it's fucking unfair all the time and energy and the money and you've done everything perfectly and you've set everything up and that you have every right to just throw your hands up in the air and go, fuck it, fuck the world. I'm not doing this anymore. You have every right to do that. I think the people that are really great at at the job are the people that get past that initial moment. And then they start to discover really wonderful things. And like you said, and like I was saying before, the shit that you come up with in there sometimes is better and sometimes is more exciting and it's more rewarding, at least for me, I'll look at these sequences that I know I've had trouble creating and, and be three times as proud of them. Because oh, for sure. Because you're like, yeah, fuck you. I figured that shit out under the gun. It was a gun to my family's head. <laughs> I figured I had to nail this shit down. Um, I love that shit. I mean, that's that's what makes it exciting. That's, that's to me, it took me forever to feel. When I first started, I thought like being a director was like, you figure out your shots, you talk to your actors, and you get to sit at the monitor, and you get to put things together. And that's part of the job. But I think a huge aspect of being a director is just dealing with the fact that everybody has a reason for you not to be doing it. Like everybody, from the very fucking beginning, where it's like you don't have talent attached to your script. Or like uh, you, don't, you shouldn't be sitting and spending all this time working on a screenplay when you have to pay for rent. Or... Uh, uh, this snow outside and it doesn't make sense to the fucking story. Like every part, even into to the edit, even into the post-production, like every aspect of this thing, there's a hundred reasons that are going to come at you uh, to explain why you're a piece of shit <laughs> and why you shouldn't be doing this. And I think the challenge and the, the, the real talent is in uh, confronting that and basically having the confidence in yourself to go, no, go fuck yourself. I can do this. I can make this happen. And I have this talent around me. I have this crew that I really respect. I have these people that are here because of my vision. I have this gear. We can make something. We can make something great. And I know what the story is. So let's just fucking pull it together and let's do it. And if you 
work with crews. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's important to build a solid team of people that you trust and have around you because you can lean on them. And if you're working with great talent, you can turn to them and don't have to be by yourself. Like the first time that that happens when you do it all by yourself. Like I've worked with uh, amazing production designer, Larry Sampson multiple times. I know I can turn to him and go, this doesn't make sense. And he can see it on my face when I'm like, my plan is going to shit. You know what I mean? And he, he'll come and stand up and go, oh, what if we do it like this? And what if we try a little bit of this? Or having someone like Crew to there and, and being like, so what we were thinking for the camera move here doesn't fucking work at all. <laughs> you know? And, like, and, and I think the longer you do it, at least for me, the longer that I do it, the more calm I am in those moments now. And like, I think I've had friends that have been on set uh, on recent shoots that have been like, wow, that shoot went flawless and everything was really great. And I'm like, no, it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> you have no idea. And they go, well, you seem so calm and everything seems so great. And I think it's just that time in where you're just, you're, you're not afraid of that anymore. You're like, it's coming. Like yeah. you, you wake up every day and you go, who's going to shut me down today? <laughs> yeah, you, you don't know how many gray hairs I actively grew during that last two hours. It's like, my, my beard is definitely different. I, <laughs> you just didn't notice. Uh, but it's so much fun, though. Oh, for sure. You, I would. There's, there's no other reason to do it, and, and, I, and I think that that's another thing that's very important. Is so. I mean, since I work on set for a living, I think that the stuff that I do with, you know, on my own for my own projects. I mean, it has to be fun. It just has to. And I think that that's one of the things that I want to do with the crew and with the actors. And I can be this little ball of stress mess, um, <laughs> but you know, it. This should be something we're we're doing together. And and I think this is something that you've brought up on the podcast before is the idea of collaboration. For for the most part, filmmaking is a collaborative art. And, you know, you don't necessarily have to be the smartest person in the room. You have to listen to your costume designer and your production designer and, you know, department heads of hair, makeup, and, you know, the key grip, like, how are we going to work this hostess tray out? Is this going to work? Is that going to work? And, you know, you have to be engaged and you know the answer. Somebody might come up with something, and you might say, "You know what? No, I don't. I don't think this is the way that I want it to work." But at the very least, you just do yourself a favor and listen. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know when you come from an environment, look, we shouldn't be enjoying ourselves here, and we should be figuring out, and everybody should have at least some degree of voice. Then I just I don't know. I just think that it makes it that much more of an engaging and, and pleasant experience. And, and like you said, that's why you do it. Yeah, dude. And I mean, just, I always say this whenever I want to shoot, the fact that we're here, like the fact that we're standing here, the fact that we're on the soundstage, the fact that there are all these people moving around is, is, a, is we're lottery winners. Like, like, it's like we went to the fucking convenience store and scratched our way through fucking book after book and we hit it. So the fact that we're actually here, the fact that I can say action, you're fucking winning the lottery. So, it is a stressful scenario, uh, but there's no bodies on the table. We're not saving people's lives. We're not doing open heart surgery. So there hits this point where have it be stressful, but also realize and understand that this is fun and this is what it's for. This is where to, to be here, to actually have, to start to get grazed because that's what I want to do. I'm like, it's the only business that, we, that exists where we have to beg people to work for free. <laughs> You know, and I think that's the embrace that. And and I hope our stories for those of you listening at home, I hope they're not scaring you away from directing. Um, 
it's something that they don't teach you in film school. It's something that they don't teach you uh, in a YouTube video. Uh, but that's that's a big part of your job. And like I, I would say 98% of directing is stress management and uh, and finding the confidence to continue to push through everything. I don't know. Do you agree with me on that? Oh, I would definitely agree. And, and I think that another part of directing is, and I'm, I'm stealing this as well, is to set expectations high, but then understand and figure it out when you know you you can't get everything because attaining perfection is impossible mm-hmm. but you want to get as as close to it as you can as close to the the vision that you put forth and i think that part of that you know it's managing stress and managing expectations and and figuring it out and so you know things like prep gives you as many different options to figure it out as possible but that's also only finite yeah and i think that going into a project, you just really need to kind of distill things down to, well, what are the most important aspects to, you know, to you and telling the story and everything that I've done with my projects, especially because they're smaller is make them scalable. Mm. And the idea of, okay, why am I doing this? Um, so for example, the, one of the reasons why I made lullaby is I just moved to New York. And part of what it's about is just the oppression of living in the city and noisy neighbors and everybody like honking their horn and being on sale. And it's like, there's like fundamentally, this is why I'm telling the story. Okay. Now what's the next step? How am I going to tell the story? What camera are we going to use? How, what actors am I going to use? Like visually, how do I want to represent this, this idea that I have? And then you, you expand from there mm-hmm. and expand from there. And you know, one of the things that for this most recent short, like there's all those sorts of things I wanted to do. Like, there's there's gunfire in it. But, like, do I need it? No. But can we achieve it? Sure. And it, it turns out that we did. And we were actually able to use blanks. And we got a proper special effects coordinator. Like, we were we got police. We got the permits. We got all of the things required to have it. But at the same time, you know... Gunfire is not what needs it needs to like tell the story that I want to tell. No. That's not a fundamental aspect to it. I want it. But you know, <laughs> you just you don't necessarily have to have that piece and I think that you know, going into it and being like and just really making sure that you don't lose track of you know, why are you here? What is the story and and what's what's the most important thing? Is it using this new piece of equipment? Is it getting that lighting design? Is it you know, getting to work with an actor that you've always wanted to work with or, or something like that, and then really making sure that you're able to prioritize those. Uh, that was a much more wordy response, hence the me over-explaining things from the, <laughs> from the beginning. Uh, um, no, but it's good. It's, good. it's a good way to look at it, man, because at the end of the day, uh, your movies never turn out exactly the way you want them to. No. And if you, have, if you have that understanding up front and you know that, and you're not sacrificing anything. And it was a very important statement there where you're aiming for perfection. I always say the same thing. It's like, this is this is for 98% here, guys. Like, if we get 70%, we're still killing it. We're still 40% over the, the next asshole behind us. So let's aim for 98. We're probably going to come in at 70 here. <laughs> um, and I think that's totally the way to do it. And quality in cinema is so subjective, so... There's so many shortcuts that you can take and there are so many different avenues that you can do. And if you are obsessed over like a specific camera and you are obsessed over something, uh, it seems so materialistic to me, something like that. Uh, you can, I've seen amazing dogma movies. I've seen amazing movies with no lighting 
And and so you can totally, as long as you're keeping your mind in the right place, you can totally revamp your story or revamp your storytelling style to uh, become a product of the environment that you're working in. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think I think there are those directors, and I, I don't know how they exist, where they don't do prep. Oh, yeah. I. And I know that's driving you crazy, I can tell. <laughs> But there are those directors that don't prep and they just sort of show up and we'll see how we're feeling and we'll, we'll walk through the scene and we'll just do, I can't, I don't, I don't know how that, even if someone came to me and said, Mike, don't worry about money. I'd still be like, I halfway, I'd, I'd be like, we're wasting time. Well, for me, it's just, it's just a load off my shoulders because when those things happen, when the, the other shoe drops and all of a sudden you're in crisis mode, the more amount of things that now I don't have to worry about because I know it's set, I think it actually opens up your ability to think about, well, how do we solve this problem? Because guess what? The other problems are solved. And, you know, in talking about the, the equipment thing as well, I mean, so using a specific example, we really wanted to shoot on a Sony Venice in January. Mm-hmm. And... um we had an opportunity to potentially get one, but we weren't sure. So what we ended up doing is I kind of had my backup plan of we had access to an Alexa Mini for free. Like we, we were not going to have to pay for it. But David had reached out to Sony and been like, hey, look, you know, we have this project. It could be really good. It, the camera's relatively new. It might be a great way to advertise it to show how it could work on a small production. And when we went into prep, I had to think about, like, are we going to get it or are, are we not? And, and what mm-hmm. are we going to be able to do? And what does that do to the locations? And so, for example, the Sony Venice has this 2500 ISO, which means it can shoot at night with almost no lighting support. While the Alexa still can produce a really great image at night, it doesn't have that. And so when we were location scouting, one of the things I took into account was, you know, if we're going to pick up somebody on, the, on a dark corner we should find something that has natural light. It's, you know, mm-hmm. there's street lights or there's a storefront or whatever it is because I don't have the budget for a condor or any, like a big lighting package. And, you know, who knows what we're going to finally be able to shoot. Now, it turns out we did get the Venice, um, you know, and I did want to like keep the door open, mm-hmm. pra- you know, uh, from a production perspective for being able to do it. Which, of course, turned into a situation where we're now flagging off streetlights, um, <laughs> <laughs> which was just ridiculous. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I didn't get my heart set on it. But again, I wanted it um, mm-hmm. because of all the, th- all the things that it afforded us you know, to be able to do. Like there's the, we had a sensor plate that we were able to shove in corners of the car, get the 2500, shoot back, we could shoot in 6K. You know, all these things, all these little bonus things. But then not get so married to it that the entire production is going to fall apart. You know, look, sorry, we, it's not going to work. We're not going to get it. Right. And now not going like, well, it's time to throw up my hands and say. But that's very mature. I always, that's a good way to describe it, I think. Because I see immature and mature directors. And I think if you're an immature director, you start to have a hissy fit. Like, I'm not doing it because I don't have the Venice. And without the Venice, this movie's nothing. And you're just like, yeah, but grow up. <laughs> like, like, there hits a point where you're like, yeah, but they, it's just a piece of gear, motherfucker. Like, you're, you're going to be able to figure this thing out. Um, it's a very mature outlook, I think, to, to think that way. And honestly, as we progress and as we get into these positions where we're making features and we're working for other people and there's money behind it, and you have to answer for that money. I think that's the mindset that those people want to see and want to believe in. Um, because at the end of the day, uh, 
regardless of how big the budget is, you're, you're essentially taking what is always never enough money and trying to make that work uh, for the story and stretch that out as long as you possibly can to get as much as you possibly can in the can. So then hopefully in the edit room, you're not shooting yourself in the face. <laughs> um, but that mentality is really important. You have to be open for great scenarios and situations. Um, and you also have to have really good backup plans and, and, and have that all in your head. And um, I think that uh, a lot of folks don't think that way. And I think it's important if you do, you know what I mean? And I was going to go somewhere else, but my brain just stopped rolling right there. <laughs> um, but yeah, man, this is good. Where are we at? We're at like 130. Okay. Um, this has been a good conversation so far. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah, dude. Um, is there anything uh, that you want to ask me? Is there anything? Oh, man. I didn't prep any questions. You don't have to. You don't <laughs> have to prep. I just didn't know. We had two directors sitting in the space. Oh, um, I mean, I, I would say that when it comes to the independent sector, and again, the people that are listening to the podcast, hopefully they're using this as an opportunity to educate themselves. Is So, you know, where do you get your crew, your department heads, your cast? I mean, I think that that's always a question. I mean, the, the number one question is always, where do you get your money? Mine's an easy answer I saved. But in terms <laughs> of, you know, where do you, where do you turn? Um, I mean, I know you work on commercials as a director, but you know, where do you mm -hmm. turn to get the support and the people that you want attached to your, your project? Because there's also always a very big difference in between, you know, the people that you could get versus the people that really share the same enthusiasm, you know, or, or would be really excited to be a part of it. It's, um, it's a long process. I think that, I don't know, I might've told this on the show. I might not have. When I first, when I came back from New York, after I went to New York and I went to film school, I came back home and I was out of money. So I went and lived with my parents. My parents were living on the Cape. So if you don't know uh, New England or Massachusetts, Cape Cod is like at the very end of Massachusetts. It's like a vacation community. You, you literally go over a fucking bridge. So it's like an island. So you're out in the middle of nowhere. So you're completely distant from Boston, which is kind of the hub of, of the whole space. And so when I was out there trying to figure out how to make movies on my own, I was looking around and reaching out to people that worked at community access stations and trying to find just like-minded individuals that were interested in cinema to surround myself with those folks. And then I eventually realized that I had to be in Boston. I moved up to Boston. And one of the first productions I got on was uh, directed by my, my friend Mike Henry, um, who is an amazing, he's one of the best key grips in the city. He's on every major film. Like he's phenomenal. Um, and he was directing this movie and he was very kind. I didn't know him. He's very kind to let me come on his set and basically just sort of walk around and hang out with the crew and hang out with people. Um, and that started my years and years of just staying embedded, going to people's sets, hanging out with crew, going out and drinking with these people that I thought were really talented and really amazing and just being social. And that's how I started to build the team of people around me locally that I trust and that I depend upon. And what ends up happening is you go drink with somebody and someone else comes to drink with you and you talk to them and it's like, oh my God, he's an amazing uh, costume person. Are you hanging out with like one of the best sound mixers in the city or you're hanging out with so-and-so? And then it's just about being communal and having an opinion on things, but also understanding how to tell good stries around beers. That's essentially it. Like if, if you're a director, I think one of the best things you can do is, is do that. Go have beers with people and, and contribute and sit at the table and, and don't bring your ego, but have stories to tell and, and captivate. See if you can captivate people with your stories. 
and your experiences and the things that you've done. Um, and I, I find that a lot of people gravitate to me and my work because I have the ability to tell stories and people like to hear my stories and people like to be a part of that. And that also goes back to your point on like, how do you get people to trust when, when you've got it? And I think it's just spending that time and telling those stories where, uh, the crew that I work with know they can trust me because they're like, A, I've seen what you do, but I've also heard your stories. I've also been involved with you in your edit room and stuff like that. And he knows what he's fucking doing. He knows what he's fucking talking about. And I think that builds over time. Then as you start to progress and you want to approach like larger people, like bigger folks, um, like Cruda was an interesting example because for years I had just shot all of our stuff. So I had done all my own personal projects. But then when I was working with Ian, I would uh, cinematography for all the music videos, for all the commercials. I, I just did it all. That was my task. And when we did um, 12 cam, I've said this before, I decided I was going to direct that movie in another language that I don't speak. And so I was like, I'm not also not going to fucking be a DP. I'm not going to be sitting on set going, what did he just say? And then have someone come over to me and ask me where they're going to place the fucking 5k. You know what I mean? I can't do both those. Um, I'm going to shortchange one of them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, Cruda, I had seen his work on Facebook or something. I had seen his stuff. And I don't know who did, I don't know who touched who first. I think, <laughs> I think uh, he, I may have written to him and just made a, sent a comment like, your work's really great. Like, I really like the way you lit this. I really like the way they did that. And there's something to be said about, um, genuinely appreciating someone else's work and giving somebody a compliment. Everybody loves to hear compliments. Everybody loves it. And if you're genuine about it and you really mean it and you reach out to people that you respect and you just say, hey, look, I'm not looking for anything because I wasn't looking for anything from him. I was just like, dude, I really admire your work. And that starts a conversation. I mean, it's kind of what this podcast does. It's the same fucking thing. Or like I'll call up someone that I really respect or I'll write an email to someone that I really respect and say, hey, I'd just love to have you on the show to talk about stuff. And then you and I are sitting here and we're talking and you have a better idea of who I am. I have a better idea of who you are. And what you're, I don't want to say that you're intentionally doing this because it sounds so sinister, but what you're essentially doing is you're, you're just cataloging these different folks and you meet people along the way. Like, Years ago, I met Ben Templesmith, who's that amazing comic book artist, did 30 Days a Night and all that stuff. And I had met him through the internet and we had a conversation and we went and spent like a romantic weekend together in New York. And because of that, we had a really great exchange for that stuff. So I'm on a long tangent here. I think the short version of this is that you have to be personable, you have to be fearless um, and uh, just talk to people and communicate with people, no matter how big they are. Um, and the internet is such a great way to reach folks, uh, and especially technicians, because a lot of technicians don't get credit. They're not, it's not like trying to reach out to Johnny Depp where Johnny Depp's like, yeah, you want to suck my dick? So does like fucking three, three million other people who gives a shit. I don't care. Um, but a lot of techs, uh, like to be acknowledged and like to know that people are into their stuff. So if you're a young filmmaker that has something worth going to somebody and you should be nervous about that. You should be looking at your project going, is it worth me trying to reach out to fucking, you know, Conrad Hall when he was still alive? Is it worth it? Um, but if you think it is, if you genuinely think it is, uh, then do so. Reach out. And that's 
that's how I've had such really great working relationships with amazing people. It's just reaching out. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <laughs> what a long tangent. <laughs> <laughs> I think you and me both. Um, but yeah, I mean, how do you find your crew? Is it mostly through the work that you do? Yeah, it's mostly through the work that I do. And, you know, I think that this is something we, we touched on earlier is that, you know, I'll find somebody at work who I respect as a person and whose work that I enjoy, especially their work ethic. And then it's about sitting down with them. And it's it's not... Oh, you know, like let me let me pitch this project. It's like, hey, you know what? Like let's let's hang out. Let's let's grab a beer. Like do we like similar movies? I mean, even yeah. something as fundamental as what sort of movies we like. I mean, you know, I, I as well grew up on Godzilla, uh, which is <laughs> you know, that, that's how I got my foot in the door here. Um I'm kidding. But like I think that that is a lot of it, and I think that you know, me personally, I'm lucky that I'm exposed to all sorts of different people on different jobs all the time. I mean, part of the nature of what I do is it's completely freelance and you work on a project and it's over and then you work on another project. And then you might work on something and you'll go, wow, like this, this best boy grip has got it together. I mean, they know the equipment, they know the stuff. I mean, this is somebody that I want to like ask questions of. And then you turn around and I start prepping my next short and then I walk over to this person and I say, hey, this is what I want to do. I want to do this hood mount with a remote head on it and I want to put this camera. It's like, you know, what would you do? Okay, what would you do if you had no money? Um, <laughs> you know, and it, it's it's all that, that sort of conversation that can be started and it ultimately just comes down to, you know, putting yourself in a room yeah. and there's all sorts of ways to do this as well. I mean, I work with these people, but you can go to film festivals. You can go to movie events. I mean, there's all sorts of like, you know, there's like a, there's this one guy, I, one of the, one of the festivals, this is a little bit scattered, but one of the festivals that a short of mine got into is the sick and wrong film festival down in Florida. And one of the people that's very invested in this festival is up here in Boston. And he shows these awesome, like just, super ancient amazing like b movies every about once a month and you can go to these events and just meet people who if that's your thing yeah you can go to something and because of the internet you can all this stuff is is researchable you can look it up you can go to you can just as a guest go to some of the film festivals in boston i mean if you don't know anybody you can I mean, it's like hey look i'm somebody who's interested in you know what do you do what you know what's going on you know is this yeah. Got to. I love the band that's on your shirt. You know, whatever it is, yep. and that's and that's how you make the connections. I mean, for example, me and Kruda, we worked together way back when when he was a uh, DIT and just kind of coworkers. And incidentally, we went to a screening of Thor: The Dark World Two at the <laughs> DGA Theater. That was like a combination DGA screening and local six hundred. Which I mean, like, I don't know if they've ever done that since. And randomly, we saw each other there, and. I was like, hey, I'm putting together a short. Like, do you want to talk about it? I mean, fully expecting him to go, no, who are you? And he's like, yeah, sure, of course. And like, we sat down and we started going over it. And and just based on that, I mean, he shot the last three things that I've done just on this random moment where we were in a movie theater together. Yeah. And I think that you run into these opportunities and take advantage of the worst thing that will happen is it just, it won't work out or someone's going to say no, or, you know, you got to, you have to do it politely and respectfully, but at the same time, you got to take that risk. You got to take the risk and all you do, you know, do the research. Like 
what's going on in, in the movie community, wherever you are in the world, there's always like local theater events, there's film fest, there's so many ways that you can meet people. Yeah, but also, hey, I also want to put this out there because uh, there's a lot of people that haven't worked on their social skills <laughs> that will approach and just start to throw things. Like if you, if I walked up to you and it's like, here's my short and this is what I'm thinking. It's like, dude, fucking chill out. <laughs> Who are you? Like, what's the deal? Like, if you want to be a good director, really, really practice social skills. Like practice hanging out with people, look around, see how the stuff that comes out of your mouth, how people respond to that. Like that's so important because if you're going to be convincing crew, if you're going to be doing something like this, like if you were fucking, if you were a super awkward dude that ran up to crew to that thing and went, I'm doing a movie and I literally, he'd be like, who the fuck is this guy? You I think he I mean? says that every time I see him anyway. Yeah. Like who the fuck is this cat? <laughs> um, because I've I've been at the receiving end of that where people come up and they're fucking batshit and I just want to calm them down and go, why don't we just sit down and have a beer and and who are you and where do you come from and what's your life like and what do you like and what what's going on? Because at the end of the day, all those elements are going to shape my working relationship with you. If you're a fucking crazy person that doesn't know how to interact with people, uh, you'll be a miserable person to work with. <laughs> So, so I, all that stuff is you're definitely being your body language is being read immediately and the way you address people is being read immediately so just take that into consideration before you take our advice and just randomly <laughs> go to film festivals and start throwing yourself at bruce campbell or some shit uh, <laughs> uh but yeah man it's super cool where are we at we're at like 140 it's been a long episode how you feeling yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good. I actually don't know how long your episodes typically are. Yeah, we're, 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 we're at a good length here, man. We're, what's the rest of your day looking like right now? Do you want to get some lunch or something? You got another appointment? Yeah, let's do that. Right, we'll get some lunch. All right. Yeah. So I think uh, this is probably a good spot to end. Um, we could talk for another two hours, actually. We got a lot to talk about. Um, what? Uh, this is usually the moment where I let the guests sort of plug some new shit. Um, I'll try to get some trailers from you so that I'll put some trailer content underneath here so people can see your work. Yeah, that'd be great. I think when you see his stuff and you understand what my stuff is, you'd understand completely why I asked him to screen with us. Um, and is there anything that you want to plug right now? Um, I mean, we're in post for the short that we shot in January and then, um, there's a feature anthology project that I'm working on getting off the ground now. And, mm -hmm. You know, it's just, it's, it's the long process of making calls and putting, putting your material together and, and getting it to a point where you can convey to somebody else what the idea is and what the concept is. And that's something we didn't get a chance to talk about today. And probably the reason why we could talk for another two hours is that, so where we are in the process of that is getting the material together, figuring out what the details are, and then being able to bring somebody else in on it. And that's another thing that's just absolutely crucial, is being able to say, this is the idea, and how do you, and how is somebody else going to perceive it? You know, what do you have? Do you have pictures? Do you have plot summaries? Do you have the script already? Do you have the locations? Do you have the, any crew, any, any camera, any elements? What, you know, what is it that's been figured out and what hasn't? Mm -hmm. And Ultimately, it's fine for most, you know, as long as you have your core concept together, it's fine to be at different stages, but, you know, that's where we are right now. We're, we're, packing, we're packaging it. We're making it so that 
if somebody wants to invest or come on as a producer or come on as a cast member, you know, what, what's the best way to explain it, which is, of course, very early in the process, but it's also very time consuming and it takes a lot of time and energy and figuring it out. And since this is an anthology project, there's a lot of people whose input, you know, you want to you want to take in and distill and take the best of the best. And the greatest thing about it is you have a collection of incredibly intelligent people providing their input. You know, but then you also have to, you know, what is it? Again, like, what is it truly the story that you want to tell? Mm-hmm. And how are all the pieces going to fit together? Yeah, and there needs to be, honestly, there needs to be a captain of the ship at some point. So, like, I, you find that when you have so many, at least I do, when you when you have so much really, so many talented people, especially directing on a, on a movie, you have all of this talented uh, energy that's coming at you and p- so many different ways of doing things. And then eventually it all just sort of has to come through some filter or someone at the top that's like wrangling, <laughs> wrangling all these crazy fucking dogs. And it's like, this is good. This is good. You, you, this is great from you. This is really good for you. This is what the idea is going to be. Let's push it. Um, and uh, I think that's, you know, keep all that stuff in mind as you guys are designing things and putting things together. Um, so cool. Yeah. And then what do, where do they see your stuff? Do you have a website or anything? I actually don't. Oh, my which God. Is, I know. I know. It's, it's borderline blasphemous. Uh, I, I don't actually have a website. I just figured out Instagram. Thank you, Kruda, for forcing me to figure that <laughs> shit out. Um, no, I mean, it's, what, did you walk out of a fucking time machine? <laughs> Total Luddite. No, I mean, I, I think that it, par- partly for me, it, it is part of the... Having the career as an AD and in you know transitioning to directing, I mean, as an AD, you don't necessarily need all of that material. And oh yeah, for you, it's the IMDb page, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, check that out. There's not a whole lot of information there, but <laughs> I mean, I think that um, that that's kind of part of the development process. And one of the great things about being on this podcast and listening to the other guests that have been on here is that everybody's always. You're always in the process. You're always doing it. Pretty much, if you're still going to be in the industry, you're always developing. And whether it's learning about what the new piece of equipment is or whether it's, you know, furthering your career, you know, hey, I just spent a ton of time as a camera operator and I really want to be a DP or like, you know what, I've been directing for a while and really it's writing that I enjoy. Almost everybody that I've ever talked to is in some form of transition. And I think that, you know, that that's kind of where I am now is... You know, I'm meeting with commercial production companies, having those those sort of interviews and getting in, you know, it, it, it's a development process. It's, you know, what is my website going to look like? I mean, will it represent any of my AD work? Well, you know, won't it? I don't, I haven't quite figured all of that out yet, but yeah. considering that's where it is, I don't have a website. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, dude, if you want my advice, have an Instagram page. The thing that's so crazy these days is that, uh, I mean, I spend so much fucking time on my website. And I get hired. People don't even go to it, and and, and most like creative directors uh, are all shopping for people on Instagram, and literally they just sort of it, it's it's fucking mind blowing to me when I see like uh, people hiring just off of Instagram alone. And it's I think if you do get into that game, which it sounds like you're getting into that game, sort of, uh, it becomes this it becomes this second job where you're creating this false. <laughs> sense of reality knowing that uh people that are going to hire you are looking at it and i try to keep mine as honest and true as possible um which leads to some of those problems that we were talking about off mic which means that most people want to hang out and have beers with me and they eat a lot of food <laughs> shit because <laughs> it's pretty fucking honest my doctor hates it but you know what are you gonna do um 
but yeah, man, it's it's important because, you know, Gina and I were talking about it the other day. Like, people get hired off of Instagram, and that's it. And and when you think about who, especially in the ad world, if you think about who all these creative directors are, the ad world, everybody's young. You have to be young, and so these these young creative directors are like. 25 24 25 and so they're all doing this shit all day swipe 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 and so instagram's important for it man so that's today's episode told you it'd be fun uh like i said as soon as we cut there Stu and i went out and had too many drinks and uh cheeseburgers with frog wow when i end up dead you guys will know why um so thanks for listening and uh like i said support the show check us out on uh instagram go there and love with the process pod on instagram or check me out at mike petchy on instagram uh, you can tell me I suck there. You can tell me how much you like the show. Uh, that's where you talk to me. So go there and hang out. You can also go to inlovewiththeprocess.com. And if you guys are buying, so many of us buy shit on Amazon. They're taking over the fucking world. And if you're going to do so, use the link on inlovewiththeprocess.com. It's a link that we have set up with them. So all of your purchases that you do normally through that link, all you have to do is visit the website through our link or banner. And we'll get a percentage of purchases, which will go to the show. So it's a great way to support us. Uh, let's stick it to the man that's taking over the world. Give us some loot. Um, and that would be great. I really appreciate you guys. And like I said, uh, more episodes on the way. Getting ready. September 1st is when we're doing that move. We're going to be making our way across the country. Very exciting stuff uh, as the world sort of opens up to us a bit more. For both me and Gina in our careers uh, and for the show because now I'll have access to some really interesting folks out there that they can just come over. We don't have to do the whole fucking Skype shit. You know what I mean? So that'll be cool. And uh, yeah. So I hope you guys are uh, getting ready for the summer. Hope you guys are getting the grills out and uh, send me some pics. You know, what are you making? What are you grilling? I'm interested. What are your new tricks that you have? Teach me. Teach me your new shit. Send me stuff on Instagram. I'd love to see it. All right. I'm fucking sweating. I am going to stop this and turn on the AC. So love you guys. Thanks for listening.